You know, Trump is also likely the first president to respond by appearing to incite violence, as this week when he warned of potential, quote, death and destruction. I, when I saw that, I was disturbed by that. What was your reaction? Should we be concerned about another January 6th style violence? Or worse. Uh, because here we have a case, you know, when can you and I think of an ex-president or a president or a presidential candidate who essentially threatened the assassination implied of a prosecutor, Prosecutor Bragg in New York City and others, in an effort, I believe, to intimidate prosecutors uh, all over the country, as well as juries and others who might be involved in trials, you get involved in a trial of Donald Trump, you may be subject to the same kind of danger against your life. No president has ever done that before. And I loved your segment just before about Waco. You know, Waco, just as you were all saying, in April of 1993 was a national tragedy. Confrontation between DOJ and FBI and the ATF against uh, a group of people who were uh, in a siege, David Koresh and cult leaders, ultimately tragically killed over 80 of them, including Koresh. Two years later, that led to the worst act on that same anniversary, right. 1995, worst act of domestic terrorism in American history, the bombing of that federal building in Oklahoma City. Donald Trump knows exactly what he's doing. So you've got an ex-president threatening domestic terrorism. We know that he's in, in, in league with groups like this, or at least in touch. Never seen anything like this before. Season 3, Episode 16, Trump's First Indictment. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis regarding the attempted coup that culminated in an attack on our nation's capital on January 6th, 2021. I'm Scott Kuhn. The intro to this show today was provided by uh, Michael Bischloss, a historian, in an appearance on MSNBC, contextualizing uh, the threats of violence, the threats of stochastic terrorism that Donald Trump has been levying against Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, and indeed electoral democracy and the nation as a whole. As I've mentioned many times, we have been fighting a long, one-sided war against far-right domestic violent extremism in this country. What's different today, of course, is that this movement is led by a former president as we move into the 30th anniversary of Waco. So it's no accident, of course, that that is where he decided to hold a recent campaign rally. Now, the original title of this episode was Eric Hirschman's No Hero, or I had thought about Eric Hirschman ought to have known. Um, in any event, the bulk of this episode will consist of yet another dose of a close reading of a transcript from testimony of yet another client of Daniel Benson's, who testified before the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack. As you'll recall, of course, I'm going through uh, Mr. Benson's client because I believe that you can understand patterns of behavior with regard to these various witnesses uh, by looking at who their attorneys are. And I'll talk at length about that for most of the episode. Hirschman, of course, comes off as something of like a hero 
in the final report and in the committee hearings, at, not so much in his transcript. There are notable flaws in his testimony, and I will talk about those later in the episode. But before I even discuss that at all, I'd just like to mention something that I'm sure most listeners to this show already know, which is why it has a different title than the one I had originally appended to it, which is that on Thursday, March 30th, 2023, news bro broke from New York City that a grand jury had indicted former President Donald Trump. So, before I get to the Hirschman transcript, let's go over some of the other top stories, including the news of the Trump indictment in New York. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, before we do that, let's go over the numbers, sourced, as always, from Sedition Track. There have been a total of 932 in, 982 individuals charged, an increase of three since the last tally. Total of 420 indictments, no change there. Six deceased, no change there. Two dismissals, no change there either. One acquittal, same. 621 convictions, an increase of 20 since the last tally. And 427 sentencings, an increase of 15 since the last tally. So they're, create, they're clearing some room on the docket. Once again, convictions and sentencings are outpacing new arrests. The defendant profile this week is a, well, I want to say it was going to be a quick one. I don't think it's going to be all that quick. Uh, significant for this show, at least in the history of the show, it's Shane Leiden Jenkins Day. Um, I did the second episode of this podcast on Jenkins, and I chose him at the time. I seems so long ago. Um, because he was typical of a category of inmate, a defendant, that I felt that the media hadn't covered sufficiently. Violent men with long criminal histories who were charged with crimes of violence on January 6th. And also because Shane Jenkins at that time was a bit unusual because his Twitter accounts were still up. Now, since then, we've seen a bit of a transformation with many January 6th defendants becoming more active on social media. Uh, sometimes getting into flame wars with uh, sedition hunters and other people with whom they disagree. But at the time, it seemed like most of them had deleted or made their accounts private. Now, Jenkins probably didn't do this because he didn't really have time to do so, uh, or actually anyone who could do it for him. And now that's all changed. Shane Jenkins has been custody this whole time, and he's had access to a tablet that's supposed to be used for him to look at Discovery but which he apparently uses for blogging on his GiveSendGo account. GiveSendGo, of course, is the preferred uh, crowdfunding application, uh, crowdfunding site for January 6th and many other far-right people. And uh, he's raised $62,500 of his $100,000 goal, which purportedly is to go to his expenses. Although, of course, you know, He's got uh, three squares and a cot. I, I really don't know what his expenses are at this point. Now, there are several delays in Jenkins's case, uh, in part because, um, you know, he, again, uh, made some questionable decisions in that process. Um, that's not unusual for January 6th defendants who decide to go to trial. It's taking a while for many of them. It's noteworthy, though, that some other cases... Um, like, for example, uh, Stuart Rhodes was charged after Jenkins and nonetheless a more complicated trial with co-defendants, um, but yet his case has been resolved more quickly 
sentenced to, sorry, found guilty of seditious conspiracy, faces sentencing this July. Uh, all that before Jenkins even went to trial, even though Jenkins's case is a, a lot more cut and dried, arguably, than Rhodes's. Now, this delay was due in part to Jenkins's de decision in December of 2021 to fire his public defender and to hire John Pierce instead. Pierce, who has engaged in enough legal shenanigans to fill several episodes of this podcast by this point, had been facing any number of financial issues at his firm, Pierce Bainbridge. And so perhaps his decision to represent as many January 6th defendants as possible was as much financial as ideological, although he is one of those attorneys who is very much ideologically driven. Now, disastrously for Jenkins, Jenkins made the decision to retain John Pierce uh, exactly the moment that Pierce went AWOL in uh, the D.C. District Court uh, because he contracted a case of COVID that was severe enough to require hospitalization. Ultimately, Jenkins winds up hiring the private attorneys Blarena Jassari and Dennis Boyle, Dennis Boyle to handle his case instead of Pierce. Uh, they filed to represent him on December 6, 2021, and Pierce withdrew from the case on December 12, 2021. And also, of course, Shane Jenkins should have taken the plea, which is, I'm sure, what his public defender had advised him to do. Um, he said as much. Other defendants have said that, look, these public defenders, they, they want us to plead out. Yeah, there's a reason why they want you to plead out. It's not just the institutional interests of the system. It is, in fact, because they're guilty. And the evidence showing their guilt is really, really good. They committed their crimes in broad, broad daylight in probably the most photographed venue on the most photographed video day in human history. Now, this is not unusual. For some reason, I don't know why. Uh, well, okay, I do know. I'm going to offer an explanation why. Nonetheless, um, many of the defendants who have been held pretrial at the D.C. Correctional Facility, uh, D.C. Jail, um, basically their, their own, what they call the, the Patriot Wing, many of them have gone to trial, disproportionately so. The vast majority of January 6th defendants have been um, opting for plea bargains. But among those who have been detained pre-trial, many of these have been opting for either a jury trial or a bench trial. And I think a lot of this goes to the ill-fated decision to house these defendants together. Now, I understand that there were safety and security issues at the D.C. jail, but that's resulted in putting them all together and creating they've created this strange cult-like subculture. The vast majority of these defendants would have been better served by a plea bargain. Again, they committed their offenses on camera in broad daylight. And the most difficult part for many of their cases has been identification. The government has not been losing these assault on a federal officer cases at trial. They've been winning them. And that should be, have been evident to any competent attorney from the start. You're on video doing the crime. If you're facing multiple charges, you should probably take the plea. A special instance of a, what I would, you know, economists call the sunk cost fallacy appears to have set in. So they put it all on the line for Trump. Now they're incarcerated. And what are they going to do? 
they're doubling down. This is like the, the sunk cost fallacy. I've invested so much in this. I can't give up now. It's it's high stakes, is a very high stakes gamble for them. So they're they're all they're all friends with one another. They've got their little freedom corner uh, vigils, uh, these odd little protests occurring outside the jail. They are, of course, famously singing um, their version of the national anthem every night. And these inmates are doing jailhouse lawyering. They're digging in their heels and they've got this mutual determination to go to trial and being risked, risking found, being found guilty on all accounts versus accepting a plea deal that usually entails pleading to one or two felony charges, uh, which will always include the most serious felony count, which for most of them is assault on a federal officer or AFO. Now, compared to many defendants, uh, Jenkins has flown under the radar. Perhaps that's because of his criminal history. Perhaps it's because of his facial tattoo, a teardrop tattoo, for example, the, he tattooed, uh, had a tattoo covering now, uh, has Mama Tried, a reference to the Merle Haggard song, the same name tattooed on his neck. Um, but nonetheless, I think he's emerged, he's become more prominent as time has gone on, uh, simply because he, again, is one of these pretrial defendants who have been housed pre-trial, and there's this misconception that um, these defendants are, you know, trespassing defendants. No, no, all the ones who are who have been detained pre-trial are people who are charged with serious felonies, almost all of them crimes of violence, uh, to include the AFO charge. So after a trial that was much shorter than, uh, let's say, the ongoing Proud Boys trial, Shane Jenkins was found guilty this week. And I'll post a link to the DOJ press release in the show notes. So he's found guilty on all counts. And the sole victory for the defense was that the jury decided that a flagpole uh, they used in one of his assaults on federal officers didn't count as a dangerous weapon. So let's go over the things for which he was found guilty. Corruptly obstructing an official proceeding of Congress. Interfering with law enforcement officers during civil disorder assaulting, resisting, or impeding law enforcement officers with a deadly or dangerous weapon, destruction of government property, entering and remaining in a restricted building or grounds with a deadly or dangerous weapon, Dis disorderly or disruptive conduct in a restricted building or grounds with a deadly or dangerous weapon, and engaging in physical violence in a restricted building or grounds with a deadly or dangerous weapon. So all felonies, uh, as well as some misdemeanor counts, including disorderly conduct in the Capitol building and active physical violence in the Capitol grounds or buildings. All right, so that's an awful lot. Um, and as I mentioned in episode two, Jenkins has a long criminal history. That's an awful long list of charges. The only thing really uh, going for him at this point is that he doesn't have an enhancement for serious bodily injury, on any of those violent counts. So sentencing is scheduled for July 28th, 2023. And the longest sentence so far has been the 10 years awarded to the eye gouger, Thomas Webster, the New York City uh, police retiree who got 10 years. I'm pretty sure that Shane Jenkins is going to beat that easily. Um, oddly enough, I, I believe... Uh, Rhodes is going to be sentenced on, on the very same day uh, in front of the very same judge. Um, so, you know, we'll have to look out for, like, who's going to win 
Uh, some of these serious AFO defendants who have criminal histories and multiple counts against them, um, or, you know, the people who are, have been convicted of seditious conspiracy. But again, the upshot of this is that Shane Jenkins really should have taken the plea. And also, of course, he is subject to financial forfeiture, so it'll be interesting to see if the government also goes after the over $60,000 that Shane Jenkins has raised up to this point through his GiveSendGo account. Speaking of which, um, Jenkins has left some interesting content in his blog on the GiveSendGo account that I think should be taken into account at sentencing. Some of these defendants have been getting a little bit of credit for admitting the nature and wrongfulness of their acts and demonstrating adequate contrition. This is not Shane Jenkins' path. He has not decided to do any of that. Faced with all this time, he has once again decided to double down. So uh, hopefully this is something that will be taken into consideration at sentencing. I'm going to read what his blog post, rather long, uh, was already uh, a rather long episode. Uh, nonetheless, I think it's illustrative of his other blog ent ent entries. And so uh, we'll give you a feel for what they're going to have to look at when it comes to sentencing with regard to contrition and you know the nature, uh, his awareness of the nature of the wrongfulness of his acts. Quote, September is upon us. Where is the year gone? Uh, it's gone down to jail. You've been in, in prison, uh, jail this whole time, Shane. Okay. As I lay in my cell thinking it's been a long road, we are still required to wear a mask outside our cells, which causes many of us to stay in our cells even when we have the opportunity to be out. The DOJ continues to use every dirty trick it has in its repertoire, from giving us edited low-quality video evidence, withholding evidence, to their stooge sympathizer lawyers some of us end up with who sabotage our cases by taking a knee and withholding evidence and not filing a single motion on our behalf. This truly is a battle of good and evil. It appears as if evil is winning. Many men are about to take plea offers. Pray for them. When faced with an offer of five years or the threat of 12 to 15 years, many men make the choice. They want to see their wives and children sooner rather than later, and who can blame them? Not me. However, there are a handful who will carry on to the end. It does, all caps, appear evil is winning. But I know the truth. God is fighting for us. We are weakened in our flesh and tired and need to be held up at times. But we have a good, good father who clears the way for us and leads us to refuge and water and shelters us from the storm. Some of us will perceive even under the threat of a terrorism enhancement, which in my case would carry 240 to 360 months or 20 to 30 years. The truth of what happened is more important than my freedom. The brutality of the MPD and Capitol Police must be exposed. What I witnessed that day was tragic. Women and elderly people being targeted. People being hit in the head with batons, which is a strict no-no. It's aggravated assault, potentially lethal force. People being sprayed, flashbanged, and tear-gassed for protesting peacefully. Then, 
police forcing people out of the tunnel, piling them dangerously on top of each other and throwing a whole pile down the stairs. The piling of people is what I believe to believe led to Roseanne being unconscious and could have killed her, or it could have made the female officer of the MPD striking her in the head with a stick as she lay unconscious on the ground. The same female officer who was honored and flown to attend the Super Bowl and awarded all types of honors. Disgraceful. Some of us must go to trial to expose the testimony and lies the officers made in their federal statements, which they will likely contradict on the stand, like we saw at Mr. Fitzsimmons' trial. Uh, it's Fitzsimons, but he spells it Fitzsimmons. Anyway. So thank you for your support and your prayers. We need all the prayers we can get, especially for endurance to see this through, for courage to make the hard choice. We truly love and appreciate you all. I love reading the comments and prayers you all send. Please write if you are inclined. I love hearing from my friends and prayer warriors. You are fighting alongside us all. We will prevail if we stay the course. You are wonderful and amazing, and I have a huge family now. You, you already had five kids, but okay. God bless you all. Shane Jenkins. So there you have it. Shane Jenkins will do 20 years. He'll do 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, if God wills it. There's no remorse, no acknowledgement of guilt, only a self-righteous belief that anything and everything is justified by his faith in his God, Donald J. Trump. Somebody get Shane Jenkins across. It seems like he'd be happy to haul that thing up Golgotha and pound the names, the nails into his own flesh himself. So I, I earnestly hope that Shane Jenkins's lack of remorse, his complete lack of contrition of any kind, and his willingness to blame the officers that he assaulted on January 6th for his assaultive behavior is taken into account as sentencing. Moving on to other news, the new chief judge of the D.C. District Court, James Boesberg, has ruled that Mike Pence must testify before a grand jury investigating January 6th. This isn't the stolen documents case or the, the perfect call in Georgia or the hush money case, but the coup attempt itself. Now, Pence has said that it's extraordinary that he's being asked to do this, but he's also claimed, quote, let me be clear, I have nothing to hide, and, quote, I have a constitution to uphold. I upheld the constitution on January 6th, end quote. He said that in an interview with Newsmax. Now, you'd think that if Pence actually felt this way about the constitution, he wouldn't have fought the subpoena. He would have just gone in voluntarily and testified. Um, you know, Pence has done one honorable thing in politics, and he appears to be hellbent on undoing that one thing. Well, he's going to have to testify now, uh, except for matters that involve his role as the president of the Senate, uh, which Boesberg ruled were subject to the speech, speech and debate clause, despite the fact, by the way, that, you know, he's a member of the executive branch. So, uh, again, that seems a bit screwy to me. Uh, the vice president is an executive branch official. You, you don't get to have all the privileges of executive privilege and everything that attaches to that. And also... Uh, the immunity is conferred by the speech and debate clause. Nonetheless, that's what he's got. 
Not, I honestly don't know, and neither does anyone else, how badly Pence's testimony is needed for the government to be able to make their case against Trump. But he's avoided testifying so far. He didn't testify before the January 6th committee. So it's good to have his version of events. Um, although, again, you know, I think at this late date, they probably don't necessarily need his testimony. And so now, before I get on to the Hirschman transcript, a few words about the sealed indictment from the Manhattan Grand Jury that reportedly contains over 30 counts against Donald Trump. This story was broken by CNN on Thursday, March 30th, and I'll link to it in the show notes. The story was originally based on, quote, two sources familiar with the case, and this story has been subsequently verified by Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg on Twitter. Uh, in a statement he is described as attributable to a spokesperson. There's no official press release yet, although they might be issuing one uh, as I'm recording this. But the statement reads as follows. Quote, This evening, we contacted Mr. Trump's attorney to coordinate his surrender to the Manhattan DA's office for arraignment on a Supreme Court indictment, which remains under seal. Guidance will be provided when the arraignment date is selected. End quote. So this is Donald Trump's first indictment. There will be more. And we're still seeing possible pending indictments coming from Fulton County and from the two being conducted by the Office of Special Counsel Jack Smith into the stolen documents case. And of course, the coup attempt, uh, you know, doesn't it's not just January 6th, it's everything leading up to January 6th and even thereafter. There's no word on when we're going to learn more um, but again, I imagine that Bragg is going to want to put out something more as soon as possible. Now, many observers, including most of whom are you know more knowledgeable on these kinds of matters than I am, um, I think the number of charges uh, are going to be far you know indicate this is going to be about far more than the payment of one hundred and thirty thousand dollars in hush money to Stormy Daniels in October of twenty twenty and more than about possible campaign finance violations. According to other reporting, originally from the Wall Street Journal, but I'll link to an article by The Independent in the show notes, the investigation has expanded into a similar hush money payment to former Playmate of the Year, Karen McDougal. So, like the Stormy Daniels story, this also involves a catch-and-release scheme involving the CEO of the National Enquirer, David Pecker. Mr. Pecker has already testified. Um, and also that episode with McDougal apparently caused a bit of a crisis for Pecker. Uh, so the FEC fined the National Enquirer's parent company $187,000 in June of 2021 uh, for this, again, campaign finance violation, contributing a thing of value to Trump in his re-election bid through this uh, catch and kill story. Um, ultimately, both the National Enquirer and the Globe were sold to a digital media outfit called VVIP Ventures last month as a consequence, again, of their proven campaign finance violations. I'll link to an article on that in the show notes as well. In another story that came out this week, uh, it's been reported that longtime Trump Organization Chief Financial Officer Alan Weisselberg has fired his Trump-funded attorneys. Now, the reporting on this has been varied. Some reporting has been claiming that this is because Weisselberg had flipped 
and no longer wants attorneys with su such an obvious conflict representing him. Other reporting has indicated that no, uh, the firing took place because Weisselberg's attorney, Nicholas Gravante, has actually appeared to do an excellent job representing Weisselberg without regard to the interests of the Trump organization, right? So these are Trump's lawyers, you know, no matter if they're representing their client, um, one would imagine they're trying, they're supposed to represent the interests of the Trump organization. And um, the idea here is that Gravante was actually putting Weisselberg ahead of the Trump organization, which of course is a big no-no, right? Um, so again, it, you know, it's good reason to not hire people, have people from the Trump organization representing you in a case involving the Trump organization, as Cassie Hutchinson and Michael Cohen uh, also found out, right? So in those instances, they were cooperating, they fired their attorneys. Other people are saying, well, that's, you know, that's probably true in this Weisselberg case. We don't necessarily know. Um, other reporting indicates that new attorneys representing Weisselberg are also Trump organization attorneys. So that part of it, whether or not Weisselberg is flipped, they've got a lot of material from Weisselberg in any event that they may not necessarily need his cooperation. Um, although, the, again, the sheer number of charges suggests that there's been a lot of financial crimes charged. And so whether or not it's based on his testimony or based on evidence from his case, it looks very serious for Donald John Trump. Again, uh, you know, I find that that with Gravante, you know, I find the explanation that he might be putting Weisselberg's interests ahead of the Trump organizations rather compelling. You know, a lot of the, the Trump organization's lawyers, especially when you look at like, you know, criminal defense attorneys, like people who go into this area of law, you know, may not necessarily want to do it because they, you know, want to represent the Trump. They, they align with the interests of the defendant, or at least they should. And so to my mind, you know, um, he's got this network of lawyers, but, you know, sometime I, you expect some pushback, right? I mean, you if you're a defense attorney, you want to actually defend your client. And if the Trump organization is preventing you from doing so, you know, I'm not saying that like someone like Ravante is necessarily an angel. This is someone who, you know, defends all manner of people. You can look on his, his CV and like, wow, these are, these are some people that he's gotten off who are, are really not good people who've been charged with some serious things. Nonetheless, that's the nature of the industry. And of course he himself came up uh, through a firm that did a lot of criminal defense on behalf of the Gambino crime family. Uh, in any event, though, uh, this is still a, a very much a developing story. Um, certainly the deal that Gravante got for Weiselberg is a really good one, right? He got a five-month sentence instead of years that had been, you know, he'd been facing for his tax fraud scheming on behalf of the Trump organization. Uh, I'll link to another article in the show notes on that story. So, again, very rapidly developing story, and all of this happens in the context of what would seem to be a brilliant head fake on, by, the, on, by Alvin Bragg. Uh, on Wednesday, it was reported that the Manhattan Grand Jury would be taking a, quote, previously planned 30-day break, and there was jubilation. So I'll, I'll read from an article by Politico that reported this 30-day break, which again caused great jubilation in Trump world. Quote, the break would push any indictment of the former president to late April at the earliest, 
although it's possible that the grand jury schedule could change. In recent weeks, Manhattan District Attorney's Office hasn't convened the panel on certain days, but it is District Attorney Attorney's Alvin Bragg's prerogative to ask the grand jury to reconvene if prosecutors want the panel to meet during previously planned breaks. End quote. So again, Trump world's like, hey, they got nothing. He's making more stuff up. Um, you know, they need the time to do this. And then, bam, very next day, the indictment comes down. So it appeared that, you know, the reason why they, they're they're going to take a break is because they were done. They were done with this part of the case. They, they're issuing the indictment, and they're now going to uh, move on to something else for a little while, maybe visit their families, uh, you know, uh, getting out of the, the, the cloistered environment of the grand jury for a while. Again, obviously, this is a developing story, um, but the charges emerging out of Manhattan are a lot more serious than I would have initially believed. This is, you know, these are state charges, right? So if Trump did issue himself a secret self-pardon, it wouldn't cover these offenses. Now, again, I very much doubt that a secret self-pardon actually exists. There's no evidence of it. Um, but you never know with Trump, right? He's never found a power of the presidency that he couldn't and wouldn't abuse. We have a set of actors here involved in this Manhattan case in the same pattern of behavior over crime. And, of course, historically, Trump has used his attorneys to use the uh, attorney-client privilege to offer himself shelter uh, legally to protect himself from these crimes. Um, but that's already out the window. No pardon. And thanks to the crime fraud exception, which has already been applied in the case of Michael Cohen, that's not going to shelter him either. One of the things I've been considering, and again, we don't know what's, you know, what's entailed, although that might be coming out, uh, you know, at this very moment. I don't know because I'm recording this. New York has its own version of RICO. And, um, you know, I was curious about this because, you know, I do know that some mafia prosecutions in the state of New York have involved it. It is called the OCCA, the Enterprise Corruption and Organized Crime Act of 1986. Um, so there's been a lot of focus on these structured payments, the FEC violations, uh, the, the hush money itself, um, the possibility of financial crimes, the possibility of tax avoidance. I'm just going to throw this one in there. I have no idea. I'm not a prosecutor. I'm not an attorney. I don't play one on TV. Nonetheless, there is the OCCA, the Enterprise Corruption and Organized Crime Act of 1986. It's a Class B felony, and the penalties under the OCCA are up to 25 years. So I haven't seen any reporting on this. I might be way off base, but if you look at the Trump organization, it appears to be a corrupt enterprise that, you know, even if you were to lay aside for a moment its actual ties to uh, New York and Russian mobsters, it acts like an organized crime organization. I mean, no offense to any of the attorneys involved, but I don't think it's an accident that you've got so many of these attorneys who come from that world. Now, yes, of course, maybe any criminal defense attorneys in New York or financial crimes attorneys in New York uh, who are you know, expensive attorneys, which are the ones that, of course, Donald Trump would prefer. Um, you know, most of those may have been involved in mafia work uh, in the past. I don't know. But again, you know, 
it, it, it makes sense given the behavior of the Trump organization. So the crimes that are covered by the OCCA include a long laundry list of offenses. You have to do three of these offenses uh, in order to qualify for uh, prosecution under the OCCA, the Class B felony, uh, and the up to 25-year sentence. Um, these include crimes such as false statements, fraud, perjury, tampering with evidence, and money laundering. And again, you know, we don't know, but Trump and all of his dealings will oftentimes engage in what appears to be obstruction, as we saw with Cassidy Hutchinson. You know, he uses his lawyers to attempt to obstruct justice. So who knows? But this seems broad enough to cover Trump and the Trump organization if Bragg actually decided to go that way. And it looks like he's swinging for the defenses. So this might be a possible charge that Bragg is considered um, or perhaps is even included in the indictment that, you know, is very, very serious and really, I think, raises the order of magnitude of the possibility of what's coming out of Manhattan. In any event, we are going to know soon enough. I'm glad this one came first. It was widely regarded to be the least serious. And yet, it looks like even the least serious case against Trump is more serious than uh, people had supposed, including myself, perhaps because, you know, um, it's been downplayed and we don't know. And they kept a tight lid on things. Congratulations. That part of the system, at least, has worked. There's this presumption that, oh, we would know there would be leaks. Nope. Nope. This wasn't leaked. No one was expecting like 30 or over 30 charges uh, to come out of the Man Manhattan case. So job well done there. Um, again, Trump is going to be negotiating a self-surrender, presumably, because this is a white-collar crime uh, in New York. Um, penciled in for next week, although we'll see. Now, Trump, of course, is freaking out. He is engaged openly in stochastic terrorism with exactly the kinds of calls for violence that were issued in the run-up to January 6th. And in this case, even more you know, even less subtle, more overt, less subtle. Um, he posted a side-by-side -side picture of himself holding a baseball bat next to a, a picture of Alvin Bragg's head, which, of course, could be construed as a threat to Bragg. And this may constitute yet another chargeable offense. But the situation, of course, that we are facing today is very different than we faced on January 6th. In many ways, Federal law enforcement and the D.C. National Guard were stood down on January 6th, something we have looked at in excruciating detail in many episodes of this podcast. The Department of Homeland Security in the run-up to January 6th, uh, even in, in their, their intelligence on that day, were gaslighting federal law enforcement agencies, claiming that the real danger in D.C. would only come from clashes between Trumpists and Antifa and BLM and pointing to Kenosha and the pending decision uh, there to say, oh, look, look, look over here. There's potential for violence over here. D.C. is probably fine. Um, and there's none of that today, right? We don't have that today. No one is going to claim that Trumpists don't have the capacity for either mob violence or violence by lone wolf actors. There are still violent January 6th offenders who have been identified, who nonetheless 
haven't been charged, and there are violent January 6th offenders who have not been identified and, of course, also haven't been charged. And there are also people who didn't engage in violence on that day, but who may now decide to do so, something that I have called insurrection FOMO. Uh, we saw the attack on the FBI field office that was perpetrated by someone who attended January 6th and was part of the mob, but didn't actually assault police or go into the Capitol. Uh, and he's, you know, and I think some of those people might might look on this and like, why can't I be held in pretrial detention in D.C. too? Uh, so who knows? It is not a logical or rational thing. Now, you know, do we, or do we think that the long sentences are being handed down to certain defendants are going to act as a deterrent? Or is it more likely that the fact that so many have gone uncharged to date, uh, is that going to give the Trumpist terror movement a sense of impunity? Um, who knows? But again, the danger of, it just takes like a tenth of 1% of the, the crowd that was there on January 6th, or even people at liberty, out at large in the country, uh, to decide that they're going to engage in, you know, various acts of terrorism to really disrupt the country. So hopefully law enforcement nationwide, but particularly in New York and D.C., are going to be alert to the danger that these people present today and in the weeks and months moving forward. Okay, so now moving on to Eric Hirschman's transcript. So the key facts here are that Hirschman's testimony differs from certain other witnesses, notably Cassie Hutchinson in some details. He has memory problems, um, although he can be very specific when it suits his purpose to do so. He's less memory addled uh, than um, Jared Kushner, but still when it comes to some parts of his day, he's a, well, yeah, he's a little foggy. Um, he's very confident and detailed in some sections, and then in other sections, nothing, he doesn't recall anything. He's very protective of Rudy Giuliani, uh, even looking to find ways to make Rudy Giuliani look better, even while he himself is damning Team Crazy, even though Team Crazy is, in fact, Rudy Giuliani's team. Those outside counsel, Cleta Mitchell, Powell, Lynn Wood, all those other people, that's Giuliani's team. But he's trying to say, well, those people, they had crazy ideas. Rudy, on the other hand, you know, he did nothing wrong, which I think is really just wrong. I mean, it's wrong to characterize it in that way. You know, they wouldn't be pursued. If, if Rudy said, you can't make this case, you know, they'd be off the case. They were doing the work that Rudy Giuliani wanted them to do in the way that they decided to do it. And Hirschman also ultimately ought to have had some awareness for the potential of violence after he visited the ellipse. He reiterates over and over again, we, we were all shocked that there was violence. I think that this is kind of a Pinocchio's nose situation. He makes this point so strongly precisely because he himself it dawned on him, and we'll we'll unwrap that as as I go on. Uh, that oh, this is on. They are going to attack the Capitol. Um, especially you know he he goes as we'll go through his day. He he visits the ellipse, and the only reason I think that he would have done so is because 
he suspected that there was uh, unprecedented potential for violence on that day. And there's also a certain amount of missing time in his account of what happened on January 6th. From the time that he walks back to the White House uh, from the ellipse and arrives before anyone else, uh, the motorcade arrives, I believe, at 119 or 116, um, until he gets Ivanka Trump to come down from her office, at least according to his testimony, there's missing time in there where we don't know what happened. And he doesn't volunteer it. Hirschman's voluntary interview began at 10 a.m. on April 6, 2022, and it concluded at 6.21 p.m. for a total duration of 8 hours, 21 minutes, uh, including uh, lunch break and uh, various comfort breaks. Hirschman was represented by Daniel Benson, again, uh, of Kazowitz, Benson, and Torres. Cheney, Schiff, and Aguilar were all present, with Cheney present from the very outset. Hirschman produced no documents, a detail that, again, you know, might have been useful when we were watching him uh, in the hearings. He claims that he deletes all of his emails regularly and doesn't even keep a notebook. So he just he just keeps everything in his head, doesn't write anything down, which, by the way, is really, you know, he's, a, he's an attorney, right? What kind of attorney doesn't take any notes or use any emails? Well, one who, you know, uh, has criminal defense, right? Criminal defendants that, you know, ultimately he might wind up having to testify on. I, I believe that that's, you know, that's consistent, right? Those are record-keeping practices one might expect from a mafia lawyer rather than uh, an ordinary criminal defense attorney or any other kind of attorney. Um, you know, you're, it's all about documents. The law is all about documents. The side that has the best documentation wins, but he documents none of his behavior. Who doesn't document any of their behavior? Well, anyway. Now, Hirschman was at Kazowitz, Benson, and Torres back when the firm did work for Trump. But he also ran a publicly traded company, and uh, so there was a time period where he did very little work for Kazowitz, Benson, and Torres. Um, also, David Friedman, incidentally, was a law partner at KBNT. And he was nominated by Trump to serve as Trump's ambassador to Israel, uh, where he served for the entirety of Trump's term. So that's the connection that ultimately winds up having Eric Hirschman represent Trump in the first impeachment case. Now, Friedman's connections to Trump are far more extensive than Hirschman's. Uh, there's an organization that Friedman leads called American Friends of Bet L Institutions that has received donations from the Kushner family. So Friedman himself, uh, that's Trump's ambassador to Israel, occupies a far-right, pro-settlement, anti-two-state position with regard to Israeli-Palestinian affairs, and he also worked with Kushner on the Abraham Accords. So we're seeing relationships between Hirschman and his former law partner um, and Kushner all wrapped up together. So it's no surprise that this set of defendants, Ivanka, Kushner, Alex Cannon, and Hirschman himself wind up represented by KB&T. 
Hirschman also mentions, again, his representation of Trump during the first impeachment and his position as senior advisor and assistant to the president uh, that he received thereafter, which he characterized primarily as a role in which he gave legal advice to Trump. So confusing situation. He's a senior advisor to the president, but yet he's also somehow acting as in-house counsel to the president. There are people who speculated that Kushner's real job was, uh, sorry, Kushner, Hirschman's real job was to work uh, for the family, for Ivanka and Jared, to kind of keep uh, Trump in check. And some of Hirschman's self-reports of his behavior is consistent with this. Now, technically, he wasn't in the chain of command uh, with regard to the legal stuff. Uh, he did work closely with Pat Cipollone. So apparently, having a White House counsel's office didn't suffice in the Trump administration. They, they needed more lawyers. Now, he claims he had no role whatsoever in the campaign, although he did meet Matt Morgan and Justin Clark briefly in October for, quote, a general notification about the process, end quote, page 12. He also took part in some of the discussions of various bits of litigation around the election, the cases in Texas and Pennsylvania, the question of standing for the original jurisdiction before the Supreme Court in the Texas case, and uh, the order that Judge Alito put in place in the Pennsylvania case that Giuliani uh, claimed was violated, uh, which, by the way, of course, it was not. So in this capacity as a senior advisor slash in-house counsel, Hirschman had some interaction with the campaign's outside counsel. And so they go down the list, and Hirschman describes the rule of each of the people who were working as outside counsel to the Trump campaign. And this is this is part where I think it's factual testimony. I don't think that we can, you know, with with the exception of one person anyway, um, seems to be supported by the other evidence. So I'll talk about each of these attorneys in turn and then what Hirschman had to say with them about them. First, of course, is Rudy Giuliani. They ask about him. And Hirschman says that he knew him for decades, uh, dating from the time that he was a federal prosecutor at the Southern District of New York. And Hirschman recalls that Giuliani um, pushed for the uh, appointment and uh, that, you know, you know, the outside counsel, right? And that ultimately, though, it was Trump's decision. So um, when Hirschman is asked who had done the post-election legal work before Giuliani, Hirschman says, well, no one. Now, technically, that may be true, but other witnesses describe the process whereby Giuliani took over as basically supplanting Matt Morgan and his team. And, of course, you know, um, Hirschman does know that Matt Morgan and the Trump campaign were, were, were working on these questions before Giuliani took, took over. Uh, once again, uh, in these transcripts, Mark Elias merits a mention, specifically, quote, my understanding was that there was traditional litigation that had always happened post-elections, both by Republicans and Democrats, and that people tracked all the lawsuits that I didn't know his name until whatever in the October time period Mark Elias had been filing around the country. Page 13. So, Mark Elias, thank you for your service, for standing up for electoral democracy in America. Uh, you caused Eric Hirschman 
to finally know your name, even though you've been the leading attorney in this field uh, for many years. Um, now, Hirschman says that the outside counsel team were bad-mouthing the campaign legal team. And this is consistent with testimony from other witnesses, such as Alex Cannon. Um, you know, he says that he was aware of both Eastman and Powell and has doubts that whether or not either was actually retained, which, of course, is accurate, right? We've seen that, uh, I think, more convincingly. Alex Cannon obviously had a much better handle on this than Hirschman did. Talks about John Eastman. They ask him about John Eastman, and he says that he was a, quote, so-called constitutional law expert, and he was also not retained by the campaign officially. They asked about Sidney Powell, and uh, he mentions in this context and says, well, we'll talk about this later, uh, the December 18th uh, meeting, of course, between uh, various people in the White House and uh, the Team Crazy, and she was also not retained. They asked about Jenna Ellis, and he sees her primarily as a spokesperson for Giuliani and outside counsel, and that was she was responsible for coining the term elite strike force, and that she worked with campaign lawyers, i.e. Uh, Matt Morgan and Justin Clark, but again, more is a spokesperson rather than an actual litigator. They ask about Cleta Mitchell, and he talks about her work in Georgia, uh, and doesn't think that she had a role in the campaign, and also was someone who was a key figure in the bad-mouthing of Clark and Morgan. Hirschman had met Cleta Mitchell through Mark Meadows, and claims that she made derogatory statements regarding Stefan Passantino, who Hirschman said, quote, Pat Cipollone, and also Pat Cipollone, potentially Bill Barr, Jared, and others. 16. And there's several pages of testimony regarding uh, these absurd allegations and what Hirschman regarded as mistreatment of people, especially Matt Morgan and his team. Mitchell sent him a document, which is introduced as Exhibit 12 from John Eastman to Hirschman and saying it contained his edits, right? So she sent him a document saying, here are the edits you made, um, except Hirschman says, I, I never made any edits. I, to anything authored by John Eastman, 19. Again, and in this testimony, I think it's, it's supportable, right? His memory, his detailed knowledge about his interaction with Team Crazy, I actually think that this is reliable testimony. Um, and, you know, it does show that when he wants to remember things, he can, in fact, actually remember them. And this is the area that the committee actually used him for. They didn't use him on a lot of the other stuff, as we'll see, in part because of his uh, odd memory issues. So that's Hirschman's little recap of Giuliani and his team of outside counsel. Now, curiously, at this section, they decide not to proceed chronologically, which is their standard practice, but to skip ahead to January 6th, ostensibly because, quote, the events of January 6th are so important to us, we wanted to start with that early in the day. End quote. Page 20. So, a bit unusual. Usually, they go chronologically. In this case, they're beginning with January 6th. Again, why? Well, because they, they tend to save what they regard as the most important bits of testimony 
for later in the interview. The softball questions come early. In this case, I think they got it wrong. In this case, I think that actually uh, they should have covered January 6th later in the interview. Um, that, I think, is the stuff that really, you know, I, I think Hirschman's testimony um, probably shows he's, he's a little less honest. So I, whatever decision, whatever reason they decided to only talk about January 6th early in the interview, um, you know, my, my own speculation is maybe they thought, well, okay, the, the better stuff is going to come when we talk about December 18th, outside counsel and all that. Uh, and so we'll just get January 6th out of the way because they didn't expect he knew anything about January 6th, which, you know, uh, I mean, he ought to have, right? Because he describes himself as, as kind of omnipresent in the White House during this period. And yet uh, there's all these things that are being prepared and, and he doesn't know anything. Hirschman says he had no part in planning any of the events for January 6th, or certainly not January 5th, and that he had only ever attended one Trump rally during his time with Trump, and just because he happened to be traveling with him at that point. Uh, it's his understanding that the vice president would preside over the certification of electoral votes, and that would be the end of it, right? I mean, he knows he knows about the Eastman theory, but he expect his expectation on January 6th was that Pence would preside and nothing would happen that the process would proceed normally. At this point, Schiff uh, arrives for to attend the interview. Hirschman testifies that he got a copy of the speech that Trump was supposed to give at the Ellipse at some point, doesn't exactly remember when, and he claims that the only suggestion that he made at that time was that someone needed to verify the factual assertions, right? So this is Eric Hirschman saying, I'm the fact checker for the speech at the Ellipse. Quote, there were factual allegations that I didn't recognize the source for, or I thought it came from Sydney or whomever. And I may have very well said, see if you have an independent way of validating that. 21. So uh, again, you know, he, he's, he's had at this point by January 6th, many interactions with Sidney Powell and other attorneys working with Giuliani, and he's primed to just discount and distrust the, their truthfulness and veracity and whether or not their statements can be uh, verified at all. Hirschman made this assessment uh, of this fundamental contradiction of, a of the position between Powell and the position of Rudy, Rudy Giuliani, which is why he seems to favor, you know, Rudy Giuliani is, is not team crazy, even though he's leading team crazy, right? He's uh, noting that there's an inconsistency between what Powell is arguing and Cleta Mitchell and the others and what Giuliani was arguing. Um, quote, you know, under Sidney's theory, if it was Dominion machines that were used to flip all the votes, then why were we having a runoff in Georgia if they could just eliminate that issue altogether? End quote, page 22, right? So that's true. Um, you know, if they were, if the Dominion machine, machines were flipping votes, then why was the Georgia runoff even a thing? Just make the margin bigger and there wouldn't have to be a runoff. Um, but again, he's make, he makes this distinction between Team Normal and Team Crazy. Giuliani's got all this stuff about, well, they made changes to how the election processes are running, and, and that's the reason for our, our legal appeal, versus stuff like Illigate and, you know, German-Italian space lasers and all that nonsense. 
And so he's trying to draw a demarcation between Giuliani's theories and those offered by Cleta Mitchell, Sidney Powell, Linwood, and those kinds of people. Now, Hirschman claims that he had heard no talk encouraging people to go to the Capitol and had no reason to believe on January 6th that Trump himself would go to the Capitol from the Ellipse. Even after a visit to the Ellipse, when asked, he told the person who had asked this, right, and this is on January 6th, someone asked him at the Ellipse, um, you know, was, was is anything going to happen? Quote, that would have been basically, I think, logistically impossible. And I presume it would have been a big conversation within the White House if the president was going to walk down to the Capitol. I can't imagine that. This was going, that wasn't going to happen without everybody knowing. End quote, page 23. And again, this is contradicting Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony uh, in which she testified that, you know, now there, there, was, there was talk about this crazy thing, that the OTR movement. Uh, Hirschman saying, no, no, this, this couldn't have happened. And if it was going to happen, I would have heard about it. Well, you know what? Maybe you heard about it and he's not tell, testifying truthfully, or maybe he's not as in the loop on all these things as he thought he was. And a theme that we will, we will see happen, occur and recur time and time again, Hirschman claims that he never heard any talk of the possibility of violence or any mention of the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers. And he didn't think it was possible that Congress would reject electors. Even though, by the way, of course, he knew that the, these, this was a vital part of Eastman's theory. At some point prior to January 6th, Hirschman happened upon a meeting between John Eastman and Greg Jacob. Hirschman retells the encounter and says that he had sought out Eastman at that point to, quote, chew him out for spreading factual inaccuracies. And this leads to a conversation between Hirsch, Hirschman and Mark Short, wherein Short describes Eastman as, quote, crazy, page 24. And Hirschman offers this testimony with regard to Eastman's analysis of the Electoral Count Act. Quote, and I said to him, hold on a second. I want to understand what you're saying. You're saying you believe the vice president, acting as the president of the Senate, can be the sole decision maker as to, under your theory, who becomes the next president of the United States? And he said, yes. And I said, are you out of your fucking mind? Right. And that was pretty blunt. I mean, you're completely crazy. You're going to turn around and tell 78 million plus people in this country that your theory is this is how you're going to invalidate their votes because you think the election was stolen? I said, they're not going to tolerate that. I said, you're going to cause riots in the streets. 26. And uh, he claims that Eastman himself must have seen that his scheme was unworkable. Quote, he didn't believe practically this would work because it required a whole domino set of circumstances and some of which were state legislatures coming back into session to put up additional slates or alternate slates. And I said, if your theory is correct and this is what they want to do, why aren't they doing it now? Page 28. But, you know, again, valid point, right? Uh, as we know later, of course, you know, in fact, that is exactly what they were trying to get them to do, except they uh, just, instead of having state legislatures do this, when they rejected, you know, the, the possibility of doing this, they had people meet surreptitiously, um, which, you know, again, Hirschman apparently doesn't know anything about. 
Hirschman also indicated that Eastman had no real answer to why, you know, why this wasn't happening, right? Um, and again, I think it's because, well, Eastman knew that it would happen, uh, and he just didn't want to tell Hirschman about it. Um, Hirschman also indicated that Eastman believed if time ran out during certification, it would throw the election to the House. And again, that's consistent with what we've seen in uh, the Eastman documents. Now, this is actually critical. It would explain why someone would want an attack to go forward, of course. It was time precisely with the initial counting of the vote. If you remember, that's when they breached the Capitol, is the beginning of the proceedings uh, to certify the electoral vote count. So, again, it suggests that this whole thing wasn't ad hoc, but calculated. Could be a serendipitous coincidence, but I don't think so. Quote, I thought, if the vice president, as I understood it, and as he explained it, the vice president would go state by state in alphabetical order, and then would skip states where he says there were challenges. And that would trigger, he had had different alternatives as to what would happen. But if the clock ran out, we would then go to the full house. End quote, page 29, what's called a contingent election. And you probably know all about what a contingent election is, right? Uh, that's basically where the uh, House delegations um, decide amongst themselves, uh, what, you know, what which candidate they're going to support. And, of course, uh, since, and they do it on a majority basis, and each delegation from each state gets one vote, essentially. And then, uh, since the Republicans controlled a majority of House delegations, not uh, at that time a majority in the House, but a majority of House delegations, this would, of course, result in a Trump victory. Hirschman says, quote, I thought it's not a practical approach. I said, do you have any precedent at all for the vice president or anyone acting in the capacity as a president of the Senate declaring some statute invalid? And he goes like, no, but these are unprecedented times. And I thought that was a ridiculous answer. Page 29. Hirschman claims that he believes Eastman is a smart fellow, but as an academic, he's impractical and too given to constructing theories with no chance of practical success. Page 29. And Hirschman expresses the opinion that Eastman genuinely believed that the election was stolen and that his scheme would work if, quote, everyone got in line. And so Hirschman and Mark Short also walk into a meeting between Eastman and Greg Jacob in the Oval Office on January 5th. And he used this opportunity to say this to Eastman. Quote, I said, you know, if you guys are providing any information for members of Congress to state on the floor about anything dealing with any states or elections, you better damn well make sure it's fucking accurate and independently verifiable. So people don't get up there and say stupid, you know what, without getting into too many curse words, you know. And then I walked out and Mark said, thank you. I thought I had made my point to him. End quote, page 31. So, again, this is Hirschman. I won my case. Nothing else is going to happen because I won this argument with John Eastman. This is kind of a theme that he has. Um, he's apparently unaware that things happen in his absence, even if he wins the argument. Hirschman says every time that he confronted Eastman uh, on this scheme to have the vice president reject the electoral vote tally, Eastman would back down. 
and so he was surprised when Eastman went ahead with the scheme, surprised that Eastman spoke at the rally on January 5th, and, sorry, January 6th, and that this wasn't, quote, typical law professor behavior, page 32. Hirschman claims that the post-election litigation was seen by people in the White House as a, quote, back burner type of thing that was never going to come into fruition, page 33. At this point in the transcript, Aguilar joins the meeting. And again, he claims, once again, I think he doth protest too much, but once again, he claims that the violence was very much a surprise. Quote, Pat Cipollone, Pat Philbin, Kaylee McEnany, Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, Mark Meadows, clearly myself, if we had any belief that there would have been violence on January 6th, there would have been a lot of activity. You know, I knew how to reach the people at DOJ, page 36. And so he denies that he saw the potential for violence as something he thought was a possible outcome of Eastman's claim, uh, scheme to delay certification. Quote, And the idea of just telling half the country that your votes don't count anymore, they've been changed, or here's the statutory reason as to why, I did not see that as a calming circumstance. But I don't think his response was, well, yeah, that's what we're going to have to do. Because if it was remotely like that, my reaction would have been completely different. Page 37. So again, uh, Eastman has got the scheme, let's delay certification, uh, and Hirschman is worried about the violence that would result from that, but he apparently doesn't realize that, in fact, violence could be used to effectuate the delay in certification, which, of course, is ultimately what happens on January 6th. Hirschman says he also doesn't believe any of his conversations with Eastman were privileged in any way, so he testifies to them, and that the same is true of his conversations with Jenna Ellis. Hirschman says he never really discussed the theory of the vice presidential rejection of electoral votes with anyone in the White House other than John Eastman until the morning of January 6th. This is a very interesting moment in uh, his testimony. He gets a phone call from Rudy Giuliani, with whom he has, quote, an intellectual discussion, page 40. This conversation happened around 9 a.m. on January 6th, and Rudy didn't tell him what further plans he had for that day or whether he had already spoken with or intended to meet Trump later, page 42. Hirschman says that the call from Rudy Giuliani came, quote, out of the blue. And the investigator says, this is surprising. Um... You know, the investigator is surprised. Well, why is Rudy Giuliani calling you uh, out of the blue? Um, you know, in hindsight, perhaps not. Perhaps it shouldn't be surprising that the plotters uh, who knew what Hirschman's opinion on the scheme was, um, they might have the connections to be able to try to thwart it, uh, as well as the inclination to do so, why they wouldn't, you know, contact him uh, until that point in time. Um, of Boris Epstein, Hirschman says this, quote, I could not understand what Boris was doing on this team whatsoever. In my interactions with him, I didn't think he had the experience at all. And I thought that he was predominantly running around doing things, as he said, for the mayor. But I didn't understand his legal involvement at all, other than logistics. End quote, page 42. 
So, again, um, this is a pivotal moment, right? He gets this call from Rudy Giuliani. He characterizes it as lawyerly. He characterizes it as an intellectual discussion. From what you, dear listener, know about Rudy Giuliani, to what extent do you think an intellectual conversation with him was possible on any topic at this point? Uh, I, 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 it blows my mind, right? So it's a very odd moment. And Hirschman's behavior, I think, flows from, um, is better explained by a different, an alternative hypothesis than the one that he offers, right? He has this lawyerly conversation and then, you know, should just go on about his, his day as normal. That's not what happens. Something happens in this conversation. I believe it, it's the thing that prompts Hirschman to go to the rally at the Ellipse, which he had not planned to do. Next in the transcript comes the now famous episode in which Hirschman spoke with Eastman on the phone on January 7th. And this was one of the moments that stood out, of course, in the hearings. Quote, and I said to him, are you out of your fucking mind, right? I said, because I only want to hear two words coming out of your mouth from now on. Orderly transition. And I said, I don't want to hear any other fucking words out of your mouth, no matter what, other than orderly transition. Repeat those words to me. And I, question, what did he say? Answer. Eventually, he said orderly transition. And I said, good, John. Now I'm going to give you the best free legal advice you're ever getting in your life. Get a great fucking criminal defense lawyer. You're going to need it. And I hung up on him. Do you remember anything else about the conversation? Answer, that was it. Page 44. And then there's this quote. Quote, I'm sorry, there was other thing I told him. Remember, they just asked him, do you remember any, anything? And uh, they didn't use this uh, in, in the testimony. Uh, they did, it didn't feature in the report or in the hearings, but he says this, quote, I'm sorry, there was other, one other thing I told him. I'm sorry. What I told him on the call is, you know, about him speaking at the ellipse on the warning. And I did say to him, you know, in a rather harsh tone, you got up there and you fucking spoke at the ellipse at a rally. You're a law professor and you're speaking at a rally, right? What kind of fucking lawyer or law professor are you? Page 44. So, moving back in time now, that was a January 7th call between Eastman and Hirschman. Uh, back to January 6th. He says that he went to the rally at the Ellipse for this purpose. Quote, After hearing the tone of the conversation between the president and the vice president, and maybe that could be helpful in trying to temper some of the emotions that were running high. In quote, page 45. Well, Pence wasn't at the rally, right? So he's he's claiming that what he was doing was to try to temper um, President Trump's emotions somehow, I imagine. He's not specific here. Walking through his day on January 6th, uh, first thing he does is he, he reports to the White House and attends a gathering in the Oval Office with Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, Laura Trump, Laura Trump, uh, Kimberly, um, Mark Meadows and General Kellogg and Ivanka, who was coming and going out of this meeting, and possibly Stephen Miller and possibly an unnamed speechwriter. Page 46. So there's this gathering of the family uh, and a, a couple of different staffers. And Hirschman says that this was a social gathering 
and that his mother had known Don Jr. from some charity and that she had met he had met Don Jr. before he even worked at the White House. And during this gathering, he recalls that Trump was sitting at his desk, quote, writing or editing or something like that, and that everyone was engaged in social conversation. Page 47. So presumably, Trump is working on a speech, although Hirschman never uh, makes that connection. The conversation wasn't related to the content of either the speech or the certification. Then there's a call between Trump and Pence, which, quote, started off as a calmer tone and everything, and then became heated, end quote, page 47. Continuing, a general discussion about the legal and constitutional authority of the vice president, page 48. So they then take a five-minute break so that he can, quote, get the privilege down in my head, end quote. Immediately after the phone call, uh, Hirschman spots Ivanka Trump in Dan Scavino's office and tells her that she should go down to the ellipse. And then he went to Pat Cipollone's office to confer with Pat Philbin. So again, interesting, right? Gets this call from Giuliani. Sees, you know, apparently nothing untoward going on, but there is this conversation that gets heated between Trump and Pence on the phone. And he tells Ivanka, you go to the ellipse. Doesn't say whether or not he mentioned that he's going to the ellipse. He goes to the ellipse. He goes to Cipollone's office to confer with Philbin. And at that point, um, he talks about the possibility of Philbin also going down to the ellipse. Question. Why, Mr. Hirschman, did you think that Ivanka Trump and Pat Philbin and you should go to the ellipse? Was it tied to what you observed with respect to the president and vice president's heated conversation? Answer. I always found Ivanka to be a positive influence on a lot of things. I thought Philbin, you know, would be in a good position if there were discussions about, you know, the vice president's role or things along those lines. That he may be helpful as well. And Pat tends to be incredibly, incredibly calm. And so I thought maybe he would want to participate and come. And he decided not to. Page 52. Now, we've been through a number of these transcripts together, and so you know uh, how unusual it is for a member to actually speak up. These are staff-led. And Cheney decides that she wants to chime in at this point and asks Hirschman the question of why it was that Pat Philbin didn't want to come with him and Ivanka to the ellipse. Hirschman answers, quote, hindsight being twenty twenty, he didn't want to have a picture of himself in the back there when somebody writes an idiotic article about it. Cheney, so you didn't, you think he was concerned about the press? Answer, I think that lawyers who worked in Washington that I met were much more concerned about the press than those of us who came from outside of Washington. Question, so, I'm sorry, answer, I'm sorry. I think there seemed to be a lot of leaking that went on pretty regularly there. And I think those were the concerns, not to get caught up in something and be part of a media story. End quote, page 55. This, of course, seems to be retconned to me, right? I don't know that it was merely appearances that led Pat Philbin to decide not to go to the lips. I don't know the reason at all, but it seems suspicious because Hirschman himself, of course, ultimately is big mad 
about the fact that he was called out for having gone to the Ellipse and appearing jolly. And so uh, there's this whole section on uh, why it was that he appeared jolly at this, uh, you know, apparently festive atmosphere in the tent before Trump goes on to speak. Quote, you know, maybe Pat Philbin's words were prophetic in the sense that I remember at some point Don Jr. was holding a phone. The way he was holding the phone, I thought he was talking to his children. I never saw anyone live stream. Maybe I'm just dating myself. And then all of a sudden, I saw like on the side of his phone, like emojis, start to roll up. And he said, ha say happy birthday, Eric. And I started laughing because my birthday was like a week later. I know that Jared and I sh share the same birthday, different years, obviously. And it was Eric Trump's birthday. And I remember I laughed. And I think at some point, someone took a screenshot and somebody wrote an article like we went to a pre-riot party, some idiotic article that someone had published, end quote, page 54. Well, yeah, of course, you did go to a pre-riot party. And moreover, nothing he describes about his conduct is uh, resonates at all with what he said he was going to go to there to do. He said he was there to lower the temperature. Doesn't describe any interactions. Doesn't describe him saying to President Trump, hey, let's be careful. Uh, let's focus on your legacy. Let's, you know, uh, commit to the peaceful transfer of power. None of that. Doesn't say anything about that. He just goes, he shows up, and uh, there, there's footage of him being apparently jovial, and that's it. So, this, and they don't press him on any of this, right? They, they really don't press him on the fact that he didn't go to the uh, tent and do the things that he said that he was going to do. Here's what I think happened. I think he was going to the, the rally at the Ellipse precisely because he thought there might be violence. He was going to scope out the crowd much more than he was going to go intervene in Donald Trump's mood. He's worked with Donald Trump to know, long enough to know that if Donald Trump is going to do something, he's not going to be swayed. That explains why he doesn't even bother to try to calm Donald Trump, because he knows once Donald Trump has his dander up, he's not going to be calmed uh, you know, Ivanka might have a chance, perhaps, but certainly not Eric Hirschman. And he goes, and I think he sees something at the ellipse that alarms him. And so at some point, Hirschman leaves. He relates that he walked back to the White House alone, and he's pretty sure that he is the only one who left the tent. Quote, I just, at a certain point, Realized that he was out there, and whatever I thought I could do, I had done. End quote. And he says it was freezing. It was a cold day. And he was chilly. Uh, page 57. And so I'd like to take a moment here, maybe more than a moment, to talk about some issues surrounding Hirschman's testimony. His testimony certainly stands out in comparison to that of many Trump insiders, uh, many of whom relied on some form of privilege, or, as we saw in Jared's case, some form of early-onset Alzheimer's. And there's a reason why they relied on Hirschman's testimony in the committee, at least with regard to the December 18th meeting and other things involving Trump's outside counsel in the post-election litigation. 
But there's one area where I think that he's being dishonest, and that is this expectation of violence. Um, I don't think we should set up Eric Hirschman as some kind of hero, which if you relied only on the testimony that made it into the hearings, you might do, right? And this is someone who represented Trump at the first impeachment, after all, and defended the indefensible. If Trump had been removed from office at that point in time, he, you know, we wouldn't have had January 6th. Now, of course, again, um, you know, the substance of the defense didn't really matter. It was all down to the votes at the first impeachment trial. Uh, and, you know, so the Republicans were going to vote to acquit no matter what. But there are all these witnesses from inside the Trump White House and the Trump campaign who have their own agendas. Hirschman's no different. It's just a question of position, right? I mean, he's not financially dependent on Trump and having joined the administration very late, doesn't have a documented level of involvement in many of these criminal schemes. Although, interestingly, Hutchinson says that he may have been involved in Alex Cannon's uh, sorry, Elections LLC uh, scheme. So, um, not... Uh, not to imply that, you know, Cannon's the only one involved in Elections LLC. Of course, he's just someone who works for them. I suspect that he's one of the main people setting up all these LLCs. Uh, that was Bill Stepien, Justin Clark, Stefan Positano, uh, Nathan Smith. And, you know, all these people involved with Elections LLC. Hutchinson, uh, in her testimony, says that yeah, Hirschman may have been involved there somewhat as well. You know, I guess they're doing a lot of legal work, supposedly. Um, so he may have some exposure to that as well. But be that as it may, compared to many of these people who are toadies of Trump, he's a bit more independent. Nonetheless, he has his own interests, right? So he's aligned with this block of people and includes Alex Cannon and includes the other can, can, uh, people who are represented by Dan Benson, trying to set up basically a, a kind of a, you know, a position where, okay, well, we're testifying, we're cooperating, don't look at what we're doing, please don't indict us, um, and, you know, and by the way, a lot of the things that, you know, happened were, were totally normal, we're working on Middle Peace, we're working on COVID, we're, we're doing all these great things, we're, we're stopping Team Crazy, um, and, you know, again, they rely on the testimony of these witnesses, and probably Hirschman more than most of the others, but nonetheless, they have their own agendas, Right? And the documentary evidence supports some parts of the story and doesn't support others. And circumstantial evidence supports some part of the story and doesn't support some of the others. So it's the question of whether or not that he expected Team Crazy to move forward with the effort to delay the Electoral College vote. And there's this question of the expectation of violence that I think that his story really seems weakest. Hirsch knew that if Pence didn't reject the electoral votes, then the game would be all about delaying certification until 1201, the 7th of January. At which point, according to Eastman's interpretation of the Electoral Count Act, the election would be thrown into a contingent election vote in the House, which the Republicans would certainly win, because again, the votes are tallied on the basis of a majority of each state delegation rather than a majority of members. And Republicans, again, a majority of state delegations, though not a majority of members at this point. So the plan to delay the tally of electoral votes 
through procedural means and the potential to delay the certification of electoral votes through violence logically linked to one another, right? There's fallback plan after fallback plan. And this is maybe their final fallback plan where we're going to have objections raised, but we're also going to have this plan to inst implement violence. And this is where Hirschman's denials, um, I think, are a bit overdone. I think that Hirschman has a bit of a tell when he's lying. He over-explains. So, for example, he has this specific list of people who are innocent, right? That he goes through, you know, oh, Kaylee McEnany, uh, Mark Meadows, we would have never, have, okay, all right. You know, he's got this list of, of these people who supposedly are innocent. It is a bit of a red flag. Um, Eastman had told him of the possibility of violence. And so, again, uh, you know, that's awfully, awfully suspicious. If you got someone who's talking about the possibility of violence and delaying the certification electoral vote, and then you have, you know, this mob, and you see this mob, even an attorney might have a light go off in their head and say, maybe this is a thing that's going to happen. Um, oftentimes, he doesn't answer the question that's been given to him. He will flip and turn and answer a different question. And he also employs a tactic of verbosity and specificity of language. He um, embellishes an awful lot. He starts to gild the lily. And he relies on certain catchphrases uh, that I'll talk about in a moment. So I'll go back to page 36. Quote, I want to go back to something you said earlier when you said you mentioned to Dr. Eastman that if his theory prevailed, there would be something like violence in the street. And he said something to the effect of, well, there's been violence in the history of our country to protect our republic. Answer, or democracy. I don't remember what term he used, but the essence, that was the essence of his answer. Question, understood. And do you think he was suggesting that violence would be justified to keep President Trump in office? Answer, no, no. It was more his giving me a lecture on the kind of history of my, my country, you know, and what had happened. And I found that response to be meaningless to me. Question. But he was suggesting that you might be right that there could be violence, but he that he wanted to proceed anyway. No, let me make this part really clear. There's zero question in my mind, literally zero, that anyone I worked with in the White House had any expectation or thought that there would be violence. I will tell you that if Pat Cipollone, Pat Philbin, Kaylee McEnany, Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, Mark Meadows, clearly myself, had any belief that there would have been violence on January 6th, there would have been a lot of activity. You know, I knew how to reach people in the DOJ. I don't believe that at all. I think that everyone, uh, based on obviously living through it, was shocked. I mean, completely, completely shocked. So, again, that's back to page 36. And I don't believe him, right? I mean, he, he gets awfully specific about who didn't expect violence and how they wouldn't have expected violence and who they would have contacted uh, if they'd expected violence. So clearly they didn't contact those people. So clearly there was no expectation of violence. Um, you know, they asked Hirschman about whether he thought Eastman expected or wanted violence and note that his response ultimately isn't about Eastman himself. It's about Pat Cipollone, Pat Philbin, Kaylee McEnany, Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, uh, Mark Meadows, and himself. 
They didn't ask him about any of those people. They asked him about the expectation that Eastman had for violence. There's this oddly specific list of people that I'm not even sure is the relevant set of people. What about Peter Navarro? What about Rudy Giuliani? Stephen Miller, Cleveland Mitchell, Sidney Powell, Michael Flynn, Roger Stone, Steve Bannon. What if they had expected a violence? What kinds of behavior would he have seen from them? Right? So he's saying that all these people who are, you know, connected, yes, those people who are connected in one way, maybe they didn't expect violence, but there are more than those set of people who may have been involved here. You know, maybe Kaylee McEnany wasn't plotting a violent attack on the Capitol, but that doesn't mean that there weren't people plotting a violent attack on the Capitol. And after all, he's citing Mark Meadows here. Mark Meadows wouldn't even cooperate with the, the, the committee, right? So, no, we, we don't think that it's self-evident that Mark Meadows wouldn't have done anything at all if he was expected, if, you know, if that had been expected, right? I mean, if that was the case, he would have cooperated with the committee. He would have testified. He could have testified to the fact that he had zero expectation of violence. Instead, he stonewalled. So all we know that there was actual violence and that Mark Meadows has done nothing but obstruct the investigation into that violence. Um, also, by the way, in that list of seven names, it might be significant that three of them are represented by the same attorney, Daniel Benson. And also, he wants credit for Pat Philbin somehow, right? Somehow, Pat Philbin is an example of a stand-up guy who would never stand for anything wrong. But we should remember that, you know, Pat Philbin sat for an informal interview with the committee. But there's no transcript of that. Uh, Pat, it occurs in, in Pat Cipollone's interview, but we don't have a record of Pat uh, Philbin's testimony. Why not? Why have never we have never been granted access to Pat, Pat Philbin's testimony? So we've had Cipollone and Philbin testify before Jack Smith's grand juries. Um, I just can't take Hirschman at his word here. That's somehow self-evident that Pat Philbin would work to prevent violence. After all, Pat Philbin defended Trump at his impeachment trial, and he supported the work to give Bush the power to charge detainees while he worked at the Office of Legal Counsel. And while he supposedly raised concerns regarding the use of torture during the Bush administration, he didn't really do anything to stop it. And in fact, early on, helped work to authorize it. So Philbin invoked attorney-client privilege. He gave this informal interview with the committee where he talked about the things that he apparently thought he could talk about. And we know from the fact that it's referenced in the Cipollone transcript, but again, there's no transcript of that meeting. So Pat Philbin remaining silent when he has an affirmative duty to act to protect the rule of law is actually entirely consistent with the record of Pat Philbin and his character. Jared Kushner, a two words here, bone saw, right? I don't think you can point to Jared Kushner as a shining example of someone who is against political violence. Ivanka Trump, you know what? Pretty sure she's probably remained silent about a lot of stuff over the years. You know, similarly, Kaylee McEnany, who had his history as a Trump critic, um, you know, she didn't cover herself in glory as spokes, Trump's spokesperson in 2020, uh, 2019. 
So, you know, again, she's someone who knew better, but decided to go to work for Trump anyway. So, no, I don't actually know that someone who would work for someone that they knew was a danger to democracy would act if they suspected violence. All we know is that none of these people sounded the alarm. We're supposed to have these positive feelings toward them, but it's not based on their actual behavior, which was to enable and work with an administration that was an active threat to democracy. Hirschman seems to think that it's self-evident that these people would defend democracy, but nothing that any of them has done really indicates anything of the sort. All right. Now, if you look at the timeline, his story actually breaks down. First, he had a series of interactions with John Eastman regarding Eastman's schemes to delay the certification of the electoral count, whether that be through the uh, vice presidential rejection or the various um, fake elector schemes or the, the obstruction of, you know, of the count through the Electoral Count Act. He also had a call on the morning of January 6th from Giuliani that brings up all these issues, right? And the first thing he does when he gets to the White House after conferring with Pat Philbin and asking him to go to the Ellipse, which he does not do, is to go to the Ellipse. So again, going back to the Giuliani phone call, Hirschman describes it as an intellectual, quote, lawyerly conversation. And again, if you've heard Giuliani speak in the last few years, the idea of having an intellectual conversation with, uh, with him on any theme is pretty absurd. But even if we grant that characterization of the conversation, why, after attending this little social gathering in the Oval, does, is the first thing that Hirschman does to travel to the Ellipse. He doesn't report trying to talk Trump out of any of these schemes. He just goes, he talks to Don Jr., gets photographed or live-streamed or whatever, and leaves. Now, it's actually consistent that he would be concerned about the possibility of violence. He's there to check out the crowd, not to talk to, to Don or you know, Don Sr., Don Jr. If he was really concerned about the content of the call with Giuliani regarding the plan that the vice president unilaterally overturned the election, he might have called Mark Short or Greg Jacob. But that's not what he does. Instead, he goes to the Ellipse rally. And again, he's only been to one rally ever before, according to his account. So, you know, that's his concerns that he expresses at the beginning are inconsistent with his behavior subsequently. Um, he's, you know, he says he tells someone at the rally that he's asked about whether or not Trump would go, go to the Capitol. He said, no, he didn't think that would happen. Well, there's no documentation of that whatsoever. Um, he talks about all the people that he knows who could have called the DOJ, but he himself seems to have called no one and no one else called them either. That, that That's that's not, again, evidence, right, that they didn't believe there was violence. It's just evidence that they may have believed there would be violence and they didn't do anything. He claims that there was no discussion in the White House about the possibility of violence, even between the MAGA crowd and counter-protesters, which is just not supported by the facts. Uh, if you look at the, the DHS stuff, you know, this is someone who's worked with Tony Ornato. Um, there was talk about the, all these things. Uh, you know, Cassidy Hutchinson testified to that. Hirschman, there's just, it's not a thing that ever happened to him. And that, I, I believe, is not credible. Um, now, especially after, again, Hirschman had seen some of Trump's speech with the fight for Trump nonsense. And, you know, I think that that's what prompts him to leave. 
you know, he can, the magnetometers, the people milling around outside, the piles of guns and weapons, that, that's all visible to him. So he might have had, probably did have, some idea of, you know, the, the fact that these camo-clad people with their uh, sticks and their various other weapons that were visible, not to mention whatever it was that they had in the backpacks that so many of them carried, um, you know, might have had some expectation of violence. And, you know, again, if you look at the pictures of the crowd at the Ellipse on January 6th, uh, you know, that's the best evidence of the plans for violence on January 6th, right? How many guys in camo with, uh, you know, helmets and body armor do you need for an ordinary political rally? So maybe he didn't have a baseline for that, you know? But again, if you saw all that, that's not normal for a presidential rally. But nonetheless, again, he goes, you know, and I think that the most consistent expectation is that he heard something from Giuliani that he found alarming about delaying the electoral count through violence. He goes to the ellipse. He sees Trump firing up the crowd. He sees what the crowd itself looks like. He sees their demeanor, and he decides to walk back to the White House. And what happens next? Well, next they show Hirschman Exhibit 39, which is a draft of Trump's speech on January 6th. And the investigators point out various edits. And Hirschman says he doesn't know who made these edits and that he had no part in the process. He's then asked if he agreed that there was reporting showing that Ivanka Trump was upset with the advice that her husband had been getting from Rudy Giuliani and others. He says that's not true because Ivanka wasn't involved. Quote, I don't remember Ivanka having any interaction whatsoever with anyone on election challenges. Not a meeting, not in a telephone call, not a discussion, nothing. End quote, page 59. Hirschman also relates how he had established a process whereby he would act as a kind of a filter or gatekeeper for all the various legal opinions and documents that were flooding into Trump at that time. And they refer to Exhibit 39, which is an exhibit from Molly Michael. Molly Michael forwards a lot of stuff to Hirschman, uh, and I'll talk about these in subsequent exhibits. In this instance, she's forwarding some of this material to Hirschman, and Hirschman is deciding what he sends to Trump. Quote, So I told Molly that for certain groups of people or certain amounts of information, that she should not deliver it to the president until she sends it to me. And then in my view was 90 plus percent, 99 percent of the stuff I wasn't going to have delivered to him. Page 60. End quote. So he's acting as a filter. He thinks that he's the ultimate gatekeeper. And yeah, again, not quite so sure about that, right? I mean, we live into in the information age. You know, Donald Trump does have a smartphone. Um, I don't think you need to necessarily have people passing him papers. And certainly, uh, Hirschman isn't the only person who is able to forward things to Donald Trump. All right, so after he returns to the White House, um, Hirschman runs into Tony Ornato and then Pat Cipollone, just, just runs into them, right? And he doesn't recall any kind of conversation he had with them regarding Trump's remarks at the Ellipse or the joint session of Congress, page 64. Seems like a thing you would remember. You remember just running into them, but not what they talked about. Then, after he became aware of the violence at the Capitol, he goes into the back dining room with Trump, Mark Meadows, and possibly, according to his testimony, Dan Scavino, page 65. And he recalls that he was back at the White House before the motorcade. 
and before anyone else at the Ellipse had gotten back. And again, at this point, his memory gets very hazy. He doesn't remember what they were talking about. He doesn't remember if the TV was on. He doesn't remember if they knew what was happening or whether he was the one who informed them of what was happening. He doesn't remember working out a statement that he would... Oh, sorry. The one thing he does remember is that he was working on a, quote, statement that they would put out, page 66. So they show him Exhibit 11. And this is the note that he apparently worked on. And he thinks that he may have given this to Mark Meadows, but he also may have uh, just discussed this in with Meadows in the same room with Trump. Now, again, Trump didn't put out the statement, and Hirschman doesn't recall why. All right, so Marcy Wheeler is on Empty Wheel has reported on this and has noted that Hirschman's recollections are at odds with Cassidy's Hutchinson's, right? So who are you going to trust here with regard to the provenance of this note and things that were happening at this point in time? You know, is it malicious? Um, I think Hutchinson's testimony has been far more forthcoming. Um, and, you know, she's been contacted by Hirschman, right? And again, this is, you know, and she, he's acting her well, well, I don't know how you recalled all this stuff. Well, she has a memory. Duh. You, you know, again, Hirschman is not a dumb guy. I don't think he has actual memory problems. He doesn't want to recall all this stuff. So, you know, and there's this question about this passage. Hirschman claims that someone objected to the phrase illegally, and so he came into this phrase without proper authority, right? Regarding people entering the Capitol illegally versus without proper authority. And Hutchinson claims that this was done at Hirschman's insistence. And Hirschman says, no, 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 I didn't insist upon this. It was someone else. Uh, I don't remember who. Uh, here's the quote from Hirschman's testimony. Quote, no, I didn't give it to the president. I may have given it to Meadows, but I didn't hand it to the president. I would have. I think the reason I edited illegally is someone had a discussion. I don't remember who it was. And it wasn't the president, but someone had the discussion. How do we establish it's illegally, that they entered illegally? Which I thought, okay, I don't want to say over-lawyering, but over-lawyering, in my view. So I crossed out illegally and said, without proper authority. Okay, that solves that issue, right? And I thought we should put out the statement. 67. So, inconsistent here, right? You know, just things materialize out of nowhere. And um, it's important enough for Hirschman to actually make a change to a document. Not important enough for him to remember who actually wanted the change made. Hirschman also claims that it was he who went up to Ivanka's office, turned on the television, and showed her the violence at the Capitol, page 69. And he supposes that this note was produced sometime after Trump issued his tweet about Pence lacking courage at 2.24 p.m., but doesn't know the exact timeline. And he also supposes that the next tweet that comes out is one that happened after Trump met with Ivanka. So the committee, he's confused, and they refresh his memory a bit on the timeline at that, that point. Trump gets back to the White House at 1.19. Then there's the 2.24 tweet. And so uh, there's also the 2.38 tweet which is Exhibit 42, which Hirschman claims is the one that was put out after the visit between Trump and his daughter. So Hirschman says that the note, therefore, must have been written sometime between 
2.24 and 2.35 p.m. And an investigator notes that the 2.38 tweet does say to remain peaceful, which is consistent with, you know, Ivanka coming in and trying to get Trump to do something to smooth things out. But the investigator also notes that it neglects to mention that anyone needs to leave the Capitol. It's on page 72. Hirschman says, quote, If by posing the question, you're suggesting that he wanted the people, the president wanted the people to stay in the Capitol and continue what they were doing, I don't believe that's accurate. 73, end quote. Um, that's, again, another very specific denial with nothing to back it up, right? You didn't ask him to leave the Capitol. That's consistent with him um, wanting them to stay in the Capitol. So Lindsey Graham then calls Ivanka, and Hirschman picks up Ivanka's phone to tell Graham that they're working on the issue of the Capitol attack and hangs up, hangs up. And he claims that Ivanka is incredulous that he had picked up their phone. Page 73. He also claims that the Trump White House was shocked by the violence. Quote, I will tell you that overall, and I mean across the board, for everyone I interacted with, there was a complete and utter state of shock. Page 75. He had dinner with Dan Scavino that night, and he reported that it had had, quote, a significant impact on people that it had happened. Page 75. Uh, elsewhere, he reports that Dan Scavino appeared to be, like, physically ill. And there's missing time here. We don't know exactly what time he gets back to the Capitol, but we don't have really any accounting for what Hirschman does for about an hour and a half between um, sometime around 1 o'clock or perhaps earlier when he arrives at the Capitol and then uh, the 2.24 tweet, right, which is shortly after Trump's motorcade arrives back at the Capitol. Uh, and, you know, uh, whatever happens with Ivanka, there's varying testimony on this, right? So we don't know. We don't know what he was doing, you know? I mean, this would have been a perfect opportunity for him, quite frankly, to call in the DOJ to start. He doesn't do any of that. If he does, he doesn't remember it. Um, you know, I think there's no evidence that shows that he took any action to actually prevent or mitigate violence at this point. And yet he says also there wasn't a sense of urgency that he had heard a call between, quote, Pat Philbin, Pat Cipollone, Jeff Rosen, General Milley, and others. And in my experience as a prosecutor and in government, when there's a crisis and there's a, if there's an officer who gets shot and someone calls in uh, 1013, the army shows up and there's no hesitation as to who's getting where or when. You know, an officer's been shot. When I listened to part of the phone call with them, I thought the urgency at least from getting the National Guard there or getting people there, was not sufficient in my mind. So I stepped out. I think I called Donahue, that's Richard Donahue, because I, I think Jeff was on the phone call. And I said, quote, you have the full authority of the White House to do anything you need to do to get people out of that building. I don't care which law enforcement agency it is. I don't care who is in charge. I don't want to hear about logistics and going back to have people get their equipment. Just Get them out of there. And his response was, quote, and, and it was like he said, okay. So I don't, I can't imagine that there was anything along the lines of being discussed that, oh, this is going out and it's okay that that's happening. I mean, I mean, there was a lot of logistical things happening. Page 76. Quote, I can't, 
It's not a circumstance whether it's Philbin, Cipollone, myself, Ivanka, Mark, or anyone there would in any way let go forward with that, stay in the Capitol. That's impossible for me to accept. Page 78. So again, you know, we've got his statements, but we don't have any evidence, right? And just assertions that no one would have been okay with any of this violence. But there's no evidence that, you know, he actually tried to, to actually, you know, stop or mitigate it in any way. You know, he claims he had this interaction with Richard Donahue, but again, there's no evidence to, you know, really back any of that up. And certainly not with regard to anything that actually happened. Cheney then asks whether he'd actually heard Trump saying to get those people out. Um, and Hirschman says that, quote, not those exact words. And she asks if Hirschman heard Trump call the DOJ or the DOD. And Eric Hirschman says no. So again, Hirschman's not urging him to call the DOJ or the DOD. Um, you know, there's, in effect, nothing happening. There's drafting of statements that he doesn't actually hand to the president. Anything of that sort. There's nothing happening. Now, interestingly, it seems that the, the White House at this point is getting the same kind of nonsense from the Pentagon that the Pentagon was giving the DCNG, right? Quote, the impression I had was there were discussions about the Guard having to go back and pick up their equipment and how long that would take. And, you know, who should take the lead and things along those lines that struck me as not whatever you need. We've got it done. End quote, page 81. So, again, that's actually rather consistent with... Um, the testimony that we heard from officers in the National Guard Armory, of course, in uh, the episode re regarding the Matthews Mill, right? So Colonel Earl Matthews and his testimony with regard to that, which, by the way, is another shoe that I expect, you know, hopefully at some point will drop. So he also didn't call the vice president at any point in time. Uh, and he recalls no conversations in the White House regarding Pence's whereabouts or safety at all. Page 94. So again, that would be a thing that if you're really concerned about the violence, you might do. Hirschman doesn't do any of it and doesn't make, you know, doesn't know if anybody else did any of it at all. All right. So at 1.36, they break for lunch and reconvene at 2.01 p.m. When they get back, Hirschman offers testimony regarding the statement in the Rose Garden. And he claims that he was the only White House staffer in the Rose Garden when Trump recorded his statement. And when asked if he had requested another take because the first take wasn't particularly successful, he says he doesn't recall. Page 99. And he reports that, quote, everyone was drained by that point, 4.19 p.m. And they ask him about the 6.01 remember this day forever tweet, and Hirschman claims that he wasn't at all involved in that and that probably no one other than Trump was involved in that. And he doesn't know if Trump spoke to Giuliani at all on January 6th or if he spoke to anyone in his outside legal team, uh, Eastman, Powell, Wood, Mitchell, etc. And he also claims, again, Dan Scavino was physically ill at the violence on page 105. So he paints Giuliani in a favorable light, and he also paints Trump in a favorable light. On Trump's reaction to the violence, Hirschman says this, quote, It's hard to describe. I think some of it was shock, literally shock, over, like, 
we have prided ourselves on being the law and order and super supportive of law enforcement and trying to quell the violence, dealing with Portland and everything else in a certain way. And I think somewhat shocked over this is what's deteriorated to, right? End quote, page 106. This, by the way, uh, goes to something that's interesting. I'm not going to really go into it in, in depth here. Uh, but the word that Hirschman uses consistently is shock. Dozens of times he says, shock, we were shocked, I was shocked, they were shocked. I mean, it just recalls Casablanca, right? Um, everybody was shocked at the violence, and I don't believe they were. I do not believe them at all. He just keeps reiterating that they were shocked. But in fact, no one's actions indicate anything of the sort, right? They're just letting it happen. He also claims that General Kellogg's recollection that he, Kellogg, had said to Ivanka to, quote, go in the back and talk to your father is incorrect. Because he, Hirschman, got Ivanka himself and insists that there was, quote, no going back and forth trying to convince him that just didn't happen. End quote, page 107. Again, not something that the committee decided to use. Hirschman also denies any discussion that records from January 6th ought to be destroyed and that he was also not privy to any of the phone calls that Trump received that evening, including calls from Mitchell, Giuliani, and Steve Bannon. So, again, not involved in any of the incriminating stuff. And the, the other stuff, you know, um, he's deeply concerned with. But again, you know, actual actions he took, you know, eh, we all know, right? I mean, this guy who goes over the ellipse, supposedly talked talk Trump down, and then nothing happens. So on the evening of the 6th, Trump actually talks to Hirschman from 10.50 to 10.55 p.m. Hirschman asserts privilege for this call. Not something that we thought was going to happen, right? But nope, there is an instance of assertion of uh, either executive or attorney-client privilege at this point. Quote, it was generally about what would be, what we would be doing going forward and someone about what had transpired that day, but not, not beyond that part. Page 118. He also claims that most people in the White House were ready to move on after January 6th, except, of course, Peter Navarro, with whom he himself had seldom interacted. He also claims Giuliani never returned to the White House after January 6th. Page 120. Now, the investigators then ask him several questions about resignations, including one staffer who wound up, quote, appearing on CNN a lot, um, which he thinks is uh, Alyssa Farah. And he mentions that Pat Cipollone and Pat Philbin considered resigning, quote, as a package deal, page 122. Hirschman also relates that as he had run a publicly held company and sold it, he didn't have the same concerns as others with regard to employability. Now, the flip side of this, of course, is that would also have freed him to, to quit, right? Page 123. And there's also quite a bit of text that ultimately he's not resigning because, uh, you know, he's concerned about the future prospects of young staffers. Page 125. So, you know, he's not in on all these resignations and he himself isn't going to resign because he wants to help the young people um, who are moving forward in their careers in the Trump administration. They ask him on page 129, question, is there anything you wish the president had done differently on January 6th itself? Answer, I don't know how to answer that. 
He's the president, or was the president, of the United States. I don't think it's my place to be saying what he should or should not, should not be doing as president. Okay, really? So, how about telling the mob of frenzied capital attackers to put down their baseball bats, their bear spray, and their melee weapons, and surrender themselves to law enforcement? Not merely to go home, but to surrender themselves to law enforcement. Again, this does not occur to the officer of the court, Eric Hirschman. He's a senior advisor to the president. What is the job of a senior advisor to the president? It's to tell the president what they should be doing as president, even and perhaps especially if it's not what they want to hear. So he also had a special obligation with regard to his status as an attorney. To the extent that he's an officer of the court, he should have told Trump to follow the law, to uphold the Constitution and follow the rule of law. And ultimately, there's no indication that Eric Hirschman did any of that. When Eric Hirschman went to the tent, he should have told Trump that he could see that this was a dangerous and angry mob and that Trump needed to do something to preserve the peace. Instead, he sees Trump inflame the mob and he doesn't specify why, but I think that, that is the reason why Trump, Trump, sorry, Hirschman walks back to the White House. Um, Hirschman just isn't man enough to stand up to Donald Trump. In the final analysis, that's not something that he's going to do. Everybody passes the buck with regard to the giant tantrum toddler that is Donald Trump. You know, Hirschman might push around someone like John Eastman or Sidney Powell, but he's not going to take on Trump. For all of his bluster, the one bully that Hirschman uh, really needed to stand up to, he was utterly cowed by, just like everyone else in the Trump White House. So the investigators then turned to the post-election messaging around the issue of, quote, election integrity, i.e. the fraudulent claims of fraud. And they show Hirschman tab two, which is a draft executive order election integrity for November 2020, which Hirschman does not recognize. Again, Hirschman is the gatekeeper of all the documents, right? So they begin to ask him a series of very specific questions about all these documents that Hirschman apparently saw, right? Molly Michaels forwarding him this stuff, and he's making the decision whether or not to forward it to Trump. Hirschman says he doesn't remember very much specific about election night, and he says he wasn't aware of or involved at all in Giuliani's plan to declare victory, or the Trump 1.46 a.m. tweet in which Trump declared victory and claimed that there was widespread election fraud. He doesn't recall that he went to a meeting with various lawyers at the Trump campaign headquarters. So there's this whole section where... There's a lot of stuff he doesn't remember. He doesn't remember anything to do that 1.46 a.m. tweet. I mean, it's consistent with the fact that he's not on social media. But again, Giuliani told Trump, declare a victory on, you know, on election night. And he does it. And, you know, just not familiar with this particular tweet. Had no part in drafting it. Um, there, what He does recall that there was a meeting with various lawyers at Trump campaign headquarters where he had never been before. Um, he doesn't think this was a no November 7th meeting. He recalls that Giuliani was there, Joe, Joe DeGeneva, and Sidney Powell. And this is the first time that he had met her in, per in person. And he believes that Derek Lyons was also there. And then he recalls very, very little. He says that this was the first time that he had heard Powell talking about Dominion. 
and vote flipping. That's on page 140. There are also these miscellaneous questions regarding this time period, and he mainly does not recall them. That's about the extent of Jay Sekulov's involvement, and he replies, De Minimis, page 143. And he claims that once Giuliani was in charge, he was in charge. Which is an odd claim, right? Because consistently he's saying, oh, Rudy's fine, it's these other people. But again, is he in charge or is he not in charge? Well, he, he un, unbidden says, oh no, when Giuliani was in charge, he was in charge. Then he's also responsible for all these other people who you have artificially created this distance between Giuliani and these others. He recalls that Christina Bob uh, was using her OAN email address to conduct campaign business. And he believed that this might raise privilege issues, you think? She's a member of the media? Of course it does. Page 143. Um, he doesn't recall if this JoJo Jana person played any real role. He also says uh, the same for Jana's better-known wife, Victoria Tunsing. Uh, he just remembers that the press conferences for the elite strike force that was created. He's asked about someone named Catherine Freeze. F-R-I-E-Z-E. -E. This is a transcription error. They obviously mean Catherine Fries. F-R-I-E-S-S. -S. He doesn't recall anything about Fries's role. Um, he's also asked about someone named Phil Walgren. W-A-L-G-R-E-N. But of course, one must assume this is Phil Waldron. W-A-L-D-R-O-N. And he remembers that Waldron came up with, quote, some report and is uh, has the title of colonel, uh, but doesn't remember anything else. 144. He doesn't recall an Oval Office meeting on November 10th between Giuliani, Trump, and Bernie Carrick. He doesn't recall much about the fake elector scheme, other than his initial conversation with Eastman, indicating that this was a possibility. Page 147. They then show Hirschman Exhibit 14, which is an email from Jenna Ellis that includes an article by John Eastman on the subject of, quote, the constitutional authority of state legislatures to choose electors. He recalls this email, and he believes he blocked it, i.e. did not forward it to Trump, although he's unsure. And again, this is like many such messages aimed at Trump that he claims to have blocked during this time period. Page 149. The investigators then show him Exhibit 15, an email from Doug Mastriano that was forwarded by Molly Michael, to Hirschman and Mark Meadows. And Hirschman says it's something he would have blocked. Elsewhere, he claimed that he doesn't know who Doug Mastriano is. This email claims that, quote, the hearing in Gettysburg changed everything, end quote, and called for the Pennsylvania General Assembly to reject Biden electors and appoint Trump electors. He also says that he was, he was not in D.C. for the Raffensperger call, Raffin's perjure call and knows nothing about it. Page 151. He also claims that he was unfamiliar with the campaign's post-mortem analysis produced by Bill Stepien, Justin Clark, Jason Miller, and Oz that show when and where and how the Trump campaign lost the election. There are also a series of general questions regarding the pushback the Hushman, that Hirschman claims to have done with regard to the false claims of fraud. Here's one example. Quote, but it was at some at some hearing, there was a question and testimony that someone on this team was putting forth as to, maybe it was Lynn Wood, right? As saying that X amount of dead people were voting 
and they gave a list of people. And one of the elected officials had the list in front of her, and she's like, I called this group of people, and they seemed to me to be very much alive, right? You know, and that debunked it. And there was things where they were doing juniors or seniors or change of addresses in which someone had gone on to military service. Just mistakes along those lines. And the campaign people were somewhat, I think, incredulous. End quote, page 157. So he does claim that he had some success in all of his uh, campaigns at this point in time. He claims it was a success in not getting Sidney Powell appointed to be special counsel or Jeff Clark installed at the Justice Department, claims one page 159. He claims that he had skimmed the Navarro report and found that it wasn't sustained by the facts, and so was active in working against Peter Navarro, who, if anyone inside the Trump White House is a bad guy, according to Hirschman, it's Peter Navarro. Hirschman also reported that he wasn't one of the people who was included in the email chains related to speeches. So he had nothing to do with, for example, the speech at the Ellipse. So they try very hard. And by the way, they are deferential and friendly to Hirschman really throughout. They don't press him the way they press other witnesses. They try very hard to get him to give them a single concrete example wherein he debunked something for Trump. And Trump, uh, you know, Hirschman is unable to do so. He can't really give them a concrete example where he sat down with Trump and debunked something for him. He's just getting these emails and uh, not forwarding them to him as if he is Trump's only source of information. He claims he's an attorney and narrowly focused on what will hold up in court. And so he's operating on that basis, uh, not on necessarily fully debunking all this material. Now, they do apply a little pressure on this with regard to public opinion, that public opinion matters, and that there is a need for the president to tell truth to his supporters. And once again, Hirschman says that's not his job. Quote, and to, I'm sorry, I'm not going to get into whether I think he should say what he should say as president. So I lived through a bunch of things that, you know, leaving aside the special counsel investigation and everything else, my view was, He's the president. He is going to say what he wants to say as president. And that's clearly the president's prerogative, right? And I wasn't going to come back and tell him, don't say this or don't say that. I don't believe that to be my role or my position or appropriate to be candid. Question. Okay. Thank you. Uh, interesting here. There's, there's a question mark at the end of the transcript here. It's almost as if, um, you know, this is testimony for which the interrogator the investigator does not want to, to give thanks. Hirschman also didn't know anything about Catherine Freese's trip to Antrim County. The investigators then introduced Exhibit 17, which is an email from Sidney Powell to Molly Michael on December 14th, 2020, which is then forwarded to Nick Luna and Austin Ferrer. This is the uh, ASOG report, right? The Allied Security Operations Group report on Antrim County by Russell Ramsland, who Hirschman refers to as, quote, the expert who admitted that his data was wrong. Page 163. He doesn't believe that any of the persons included on this chain ever actually showed it to Trump and claims that he would have blocked it. And he recalls no conversations between Trump and Barr on the subject 
of the military seizing voting machines. They then show him Exhibit 18, the scheme to seize military voting machines, which he has anticipated. Hirschman claims that Powell didn't give this to Trump during their infamous December 18th meeting, and also that she didn't give him any sheets of paper whatsoever. Hirschman believes that this may have, quote, circulated around the White House, but is pretty adamant that no one would have ever showed it to Trump, although, again, it seems unclear how he can really sustain this assertion. There are a great many things happening inside the White House of which he seems to be unaware, so his confidence with regard to the fact that no one had seen the ASOG report uh, seems to be poorly placed. Hirschman also claims he knows nothing about inquiries Trump made with Ken Cuccinelli regarding the prospect of seizure of voting machines by the DHS or Trump ordering Giuliani to ask the DHS to seize voting machines or John McEntee reaching out to Chad Wolf to seize voting machines. 165. Again, doesn't know anything about any of those things, but he knows what was happening in the White House. They're then about to move on to the December 18th meeting. Again, they're jumping back and forth. Um, but uh, Hirschman asks for a quick break. Um, I, again, that's rather rather well known. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, even though you could, um, certainly. But, you know, these folks wind up in the White House. Garrett Ziegler lets them in. And uh, Hirschman is well documented, uh, along with Derek Lyons and others, uh, wind up, you know, basically... Um, countermanding their arguments. There are two separate meetings at different points in time at different places within the White House. Hirschman says this, quote, and what they were proposing I thought was nuts. You know, the theory was also completely nuts, right? It was a combination of the Italians and Germans. I mean, I had different things that had been floating around as to who was involved. I remember Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, and she has an affidavit from somebody that says they wrote a software in and something with the Philippines. Just all over the radar. End quote, page 173. Quote, because I, I mean, I took this opportunity, like as soon as it came in, I was like, Sydney, why don't you tell Rudney, what, Rudy, what the F you just said, that he's a dumbass, that he doesn't know what the hell he's doing. Tell him. And I started screaming at Sydney to tell Rudy. And Rudy was looking like, what was going on? End quote, page 174. So this refers to part of the December 18th meeting, which I think is interesting, um, which is basically that Hirschman uses Rudy Giuliani against Sidney Powell and Flynn and Byrne um, in this, you know, bizarre meeting, where basically Sidney Powell is saying, well, Rudy Giuliani doesn't know what's going on, and he gets Rudy Giuliani there, and he says, go on, don't. Tell him that he doesn't know what's going on because he is, of course, her nominal boss, uh, even though, of course, she doesn't have a retention letter. And he says, quote, uh, Rudy was completely on our side at a certain point, 176, which is interesting because, again, he talks favorably about Rudy Giuliani in almost his entire transcript. But um, he really doesn't talk about the fact that at a certain point implies that there are other points at which Rudy Giuliani was very much not on their side. And again, he claims all the Dominion stuff was coming from Powell and perhaps Ellis, but not Rudy Giuliani. With regard to Mark Meadows, uh, who's also there, he says this, quote, 
and there was no question in my mind that Mark was 100% on our side, and Mark had chewed out Flynn pretty significantly. I mean, really, really put him in his place. So I had no doubt that Mark was not going to let Sydney get an appointment into the role when she walked out, and it was clear that Rudy didn't want her doing it either. End quote, page 177. Well, and again, if that's how you feel about it, why not call up your good buddy Mark Meadows and get him to come in and talk to the committee? He doesn't do that either. They then show him Exhibit 19, which, of course, brings us right to January 6th. So this is Trump's tweet from 1.42 a.m. on December 19th, in which Trump references Navarro's report. You know, the report that he allegedly has never seen, the report that Eric, that Eric Hirschman says no one has given to Trump, even though they've just had a meeting with people who are pushing this report, and shortly thereafter, Trump is tweeting about this report, they never really pick up on this inconsistency in his testimony. But Trump supposedly doesn't know about the existence of the Navarro report, despite the, the fact that Navarro's in the White House at this point, and he's just met with these people talking about the Navarro report, and yet Eric Hirschman uh, seems to think that Trump never looked at it. I mean, maybe he didn't read it. Well, give him that, you know, he's not much of a reader. Nonetheless, it's, you know, logically you would say that, no, they did show him or at least tell him some of the contents of the Navarro report. Uh, nonetheless, that eludes Eric Kirschman. And of course, everyone's familiar with this, right? Quote, statistically impossible to have lost the 2020 election. Big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there, be wild. End quote, page 182. There's a very basic conclusion that seems to have evaded Hirschman altogether. Team Crazy shows up. They start making claims about Dominion and the Navarro Report. And then not long after they leave, Trump issues the infamous Will Be Wild tweet. The investigators then ask Hirschman if the topic of January 6th, as the day of the electoral certification came up at all in the meetings with Team Crazy, he says it didn't and that he didn't know the significance of that date at that time, and that it was utterly unconnected as far as he knew, and this idea of a rally on January 6th wasn't discussed at all. Um, again, it's completely logical to assume that these events were, in fact, factually and actually linked, and all the movement to create the rally occurs after this point in time. There's a fairly long section on the relationship between Trump and Bill Barr and the DOJ effort to find election fraud, its failure to do so, and Bill Barr's offer to resign. That's a whole other kind of kettle of fish, and maybe we'll get into that if I eventually do Bill Barr's transcript. Um, nonetheless, Hirschman is a big fan of Bill Barr. Quote, I just remember the fact that the statement came out. I was surprised that Bill would issue that statement. Shortly before coming over to the White House, you know, right beforehand on an interview with a reporter. So that was the surprise to me. And my view was, okay, tempers, you know, tempers are hot now. Bill was, you know, obviously frustrated. And then it all got dialed back down. Within, by the time we got out of the car, it was clear Bill was not going to resign. In quote, page 191. But of course, Bill Barr ultimately does resign. Um, but again, largely speaking, kind of like Giuliani, uh, kind of like the campaign lawyers, uh, he's got this set of people who he defends 
and it, it again is curious because all these people, you know, should have known, right? I mean, Bill Barr, again, was in a position to know he's working on election fraud, you know, but all this other stuff certainly would have come up. And his response to what he thinks is about to happen is to leave the White House. Yay! But again, you should sound the alarm, sound, blow a horn, do whatever you need to do. Uh, in the end, of course, Bill Barr winds up not taking effective action to warn. And it's a duty to warn. He doesn't, he doesn't do anything. And there's more emails that um, he supposedly was a gatekeeper on that he supposedly says he would have blocked, but he doesn't remember at all. Hirschman doesn't remember the December 21st meeting between Trump and the White House, White Freedom, sorry, the White Freedom Caucus, there's a, the House Freedom Caucus, in which they plotted to block the certification of the election. Um, they also show Hirschman Exhibit 23, an email from Maria Ryan at Giuliani Partners to Molly Michael on January 4th. Again, you know, this is Giuliani, the good guy, right? The attachment seems to be related to the Immaculate Deception which is part of the Navarro report. And Michael was asked to show this to Trump and to also distribute it to Sanders. Hirschman reports that this would have been something that he would have prevented Trump from seeing. Again, further evidence of the fact that no matter what Trump, Hirschman says about his relationship with Giuliani, you know, him being on board, um, his actions show something very different, right? And so you would think that, you know, like Giuliani was on was so important for one brief period. The rest of the time, however, Giuliani was orchestrating this entirely unconstitutional campaign to thwart the peaceful transfer of power. The investigators then direct Hirschman to Exhibit 24, which is yet another email from Molly Michael, which reads, quote, I was asked to send this to Congress, initiated by Peter Navarro, end quote, with an attachment on the art of the steel, which is another theme from the Navarro Report, page 203. Hirschman says that he would have asked Molly Michael not to forward this to members of Congress. Um, would have. Again, we, we don't, you know, does, no specific re recollection on any of this stuff. And then they asked what Navarro's role was with regard to the campaign to get members of Congress to object to the, the count. And Hirschman says he doesn't know. In fact, he doesn't know what Navarro was doing at all which ought to have been red flag. Follow up, right? At this point, Navarro is sending Garrett Ziegler, his little minion, all across the country, quote, on his own time uh, to interfere with various post-election efforts. So he has no idea why Peter Navarro would be contacting Molly Michael to send anything at all to members of Congress. They turn to Exhibit 10, uh, which is on uh, White House Chief of Staff Stationery. And it lists Cleta Mitchell's name and phone number and the name Michelle Roosevelt Edwards and her phone number and the words Command Sergeant Major. Uh, Hirschman doesn't recall what this is about. And they tell him this is Italy Gate and this, this actually refreshes his memory. For once, they tell him something and it's something he can remember. Why? Well, again, he can remember some of this team crazy stuff. Um, but apparently not a lot of memory on anything else. And they ask him where this Italy Gate theory is coming from. Quote, and do you remember who was advocating these theories? Answer, I don't. I don't think it was Rudy, actually, but it may have been someone else on these other things. End quote, page 206. Now, again, no one's actually mentioned Rudy in this context. I and mean, you can go look and check 
page 206 yourself. There's there's nothing about Rudy on that on that page. This is there's no reason to bring him up. But here again, Hirschman goes out of his way to exonerate Rudy Giuliani, who is the leader of the team that he supposedly is uh, opposing consistently and vociferously throughout this whole time period. They also present Exhibit 25, which is an email from Eastman to Hirschman on December 20th, December 20th, 2020, with Eastman's phone number. Hirschman claims he doesn't remember if he ever got back to him. That's on page 207. Um, you know, I mean, you can speculate, right? I mean, uh, would he have returned his calls at this point? Probably not. On the other hand, we'll, I guess we'll never know. The investigators also point him to Exhibit 29, which is an email from Ivan Reichlin in which Hirschman is in the CC line. Remember, Hirschman hasn't provided his email stuff, so they're having to get all this stuff from other sources. And this is entitled, quote, Title Three USC Section 12, Maneuver Pence Card by Midnight. If you want to be reelected, you better get VP Pence to do this in the next few hours. This will almost guarantee victory and avoid January 6th showdown, end quote. This is the Operation Pence Card memo. Um, Hirschman says he's never heard of Reichland, but he said he asked Tony Ornato to find a way to keep these outside emails from coming in and thinks they were able to do this. Okay, so again, you've got these wackadoodles, you know, you're concerned about what emails are coming in, but you aren't concerned about the, the physical safety and security of the Capitol itself on January 6th, where again, he ought to have known by this point that something was going to happen. I'll skip ahead a little bit. Um, there is a section which I think is interesting because it focuses on the relationship between Hirschman and Kushner. And Hirschman's asked about the conversation with Kushner when Kushner told him to reach out if he thought he could make a difference. This is consistent with uh, the Kushner transcript, uh, as we heard in the last episode. Hirschman remembers this conversation and says that he told Kushner to go back to work on Mideast peace and COVID and leave the issues of the law to him. When asked if he thought that he needed Kushner to intervene in the legal squabbles, Hirschman testified as follows. Quote, was it your sense that you needed someone around who would be confrontation in dealing with Rudy's team after he took over? In other words, someone who could be confrontational with Rudy's team or useful with regard to Rudy's team uh, after Rudy had taken over, i.e. intervene with Trump in order to give Hushman, Kushner, sorry, Hirschman some backup, right? Because presumably Trump listens to Ivanka and Jared. Answer, quote, I don't know if it's that per se. I think my personality is what it is. I won't say I'm older than Pat Cipollone, but not particularly older than him. But I had Rudy since my New York days. And I just felt that I had the ability to fight with this group if need be. And I had spent 35 years of my professional career. I don't think I ever raised my voice, ever. And I was general counsel of a publicly traded company. I was vice chairman, president, and CEO. I never raised my voice. Been a partner in a law firm. Been a prosecutor. And never did it. And there was more screaming in my time in the White House than every single other year combined. And it was at a certain point, people thought that they were going to like bully us down. And I was just going to have none of it. So I don't think Jared was there for any... I think Jared would have fallen out of his chair if he heard what had been going on 
with the amount of screaming. It was definitely not his personality. End quote, page 216. So, yeah, you know, that seems reasonable, right? Although um, they've got this division of labor at this point, Hirschman is acting as kind of a shield. Um, you know, I don't know. Is he trying to avoid Trump getting into legal problems? Or is he just trying to avoid anything that would implicate the, the Javanka branch of the family? Um, don't know. There's an interesting insight that Her Hirschman gives at this point with regard to the transfer of power. He says that he thought it was always going to happen. And he says that he thought Trump knew that the peaceful transfer of power was always going to happen. And when asked why he thinks Trump knew that it was always going to happen, he cites the preparations of the family to move and Trump's plan to move to Florida. And he also cites Trump offering members of his staff jobs in Florida. Answer, he offered people jobs. Okay. So, and they accepted and were moving to Florida. Right? Question. Answer, pretty clear to me that he was moving to Florida. So there were other people that were going to continue to work for him. Question, how do you, early do you recall that discussion, those discussions taking place, him offering people jobs? Answer, I don't remember. It was before January 6th and obviously post-November. Question, okay, but in terms of whether it was going to go ahead? Answer, I mean, whatever the election date got called, whatever the election got called before January 6th, it had been in discussions. In quote, page 218. Now, again, there's an interesting continuity. Uh, Kushner and Hirschman didn't talk, supposedly. You know, no, I haven't talked with anybody about this. They both say this. I think they have. I think they've gotten their story straight. There's a lot of points of congruity here between, uh, you know, the very specific things that they do remember and the specific things that they don't remember. Um and it's just, you know, it's kind of interesting. Kushner hammers this whole point home a lot. How, oh, we were moving and we just want to get back to our lives. And uh, Hirschman goes out of his way, unbidden to, to make this point about how Trump is moving and how everyone within the White House is moving on. Which, by the way, is an interesting point that doesn't really occur much in the hearings. I, I think partly they left that out um, because they wanted to play up the fact that, you know, they were, in fact, in on this scheme to thwart the peaceful transfer of power through violence. Nonetheless, um, there, there, you know, it's you can do more than one thing, right? So if you're Trump at this point, uh, let's get in touch with the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and Bannon and Stone and all these other people. And let's have a rally and let's fight like hell to get our country back. And let's uh, set this thing up. Let's, you know, do... Uh, December 19th, let's tweet, will be wild. Um, but you can also, at the same time, plan to move to Florida with your staff. These things are not mutually exclusive. Just because you're doing one of them doesn't mean that you can't also do the other. All right, they also asked Hirschman, and again, this is extraordinary. Other witnesses don't get asked this question. They ask him a question uh, about what he thinks with regard to preventing another January 6th. Quote, do you have any thoughts on how to prevent a tragedy like what happened on January 6th from happening again? Answer. I don't know how to answer that. I mean, I'm sorry, you know. Listen, there are a lot of things that would have been done differently, right? It was definitely lessons learned, whether it be security at the Capitol 
or a million other things that happened, right? But other than that, I don't really know the answer. End quote. So one of the things that, you know, we could do, and Hirsch, Hirschman could have done, is actually take action and follow through. He's got this pattern where uh, he just assumes that these people who've lost his argument are, they just, they're going to go home. They're not going to do anything. In point of fact, he's done absolutely nothing to prevent them. He sounded no alarm bells. He's warned absolutely no one. So, you know, he also, another thing he could have done is to not take this academic, lawyerly conversation with Rudy Giuliani at face value. If it's serious enough to, to warrant him actually physically going to the ellipse to uh, check out the crowd, then perhaps it was serious enough for him to also make sure that physical preparations at the Capitol were up to stuff. At this point in time, he knew about the possibility of people going to the Capitol. He doesn't think it's going to happen. But belt and suspenders, man, you know, even if you don't think it's going to happen, prepare for the worse. So the interview concludes at 6.21 p.m. Now, I think one of the problems with Hirschman's testimony is this. He believes things don't happen without him. He seems to not understand that Peter Navarro could, if he so desired, contact members of Congress, that someone could easily circumvent the gatekeeper role that he tried to establish with regard to Trump's information flow. Um, maybe there's no piece of paper that was slipped around during the December 18th meeting, but that doesn't mean that Trump didn't get a copy, right? Peter Navarro certainly had the ability to have his little toady, Garrett Ziegler, walk a copy of whatever he wanted Trump to read into his office, or maybe even read it to him, right? Uh, Hirschman certainly wasn't omnipresent in the White House. And, you know, we see that in the fact that he left before 5 p.m. on January 6th, right? This is not someone who's burned the midnight oil, so to speak. You know, I mean, on what would be one of the most important days of the testimony, oh, I'm too drained, and uh, he and everybody else just, just, just leaves. You know, never mind what else is going to be happening that evening. He has this kind of blind faith in his ability to argue people down from their absurd positions. Uh, you know, after he's set Giuliani against Powell or gotten Derek Lyons and Mark Meadows on his side against Team Crazy, he thinks that these people are just going to be done and, and go home and all their crazy schemes will be dropped. And we know for a fact that that's not what happened. Now, on January 6th, he ought to also ought to have known what was going to happen. And certainly by the date of this interview, he would have known what had happened. He's got no follow through. He sees it coming a mile, you know, a hundred miles away and doesn't do anything other than occasionally yell at John Eastman and uh, put in a well-timed swear word. It's not enough to ban Sidney Powell from the White House. You also have to make sure that no one is going to submit fake slates of electors to Congress and the National Archives. It's not a courtroom, right? There's no judge. Rudy Giuliani can call you for a nice intellectual conversation about the powers of the vice president one day and then organize a coup attempt in the Willard War Room with John Eastman, Bernie Carrick, Boris Epstein, Russell Ramsland, and Christina Bob on the very same day. And by the way, that call I mentioned before, that roughly 9 a.m. call on January 6th was definitely from the Willard. From his transcript, we know it was from the Willard. This is reading from Giuliani's transcript. Quote, tell us about that morning. Where did you come to the ellipse from? 
Did you go to the White House first? Qu answer. No, I came directly from the Willard Hotel. Page 187. And all those people, by the way, all the people who are in the Willard with East with with her Eastman, you know, and uh, Giuliani and Bob, I mean, Russell Ramsland, these are people he knew about. These are people that Hirschman knew about and their schemes. He makes no effort to know where people are and what they're doing. And yet, nonetheless, in his testimony, Hirschman constantly, consistently defends Giuliani and sees a separation between Giuliani and the rest of the, the team. And he likes to make this factual distinction between Giuliani's lawsuits, which rely on theories based on changes in the rules governing the conduct of elections, versus, let's say, those of Sidney Powell, which have space lasers in Italy Gate and all that nonsense. But the critical fact is this. Team Crazy, these are Rudy's monkeys. It is Rudy's circus. No matter what, you know, Hirschman continues to defend Giuliani consistently, over and over again, despite there are many, many reasons to be just as mad at Giuliani as he is at any of the others. All right, so I, those, I think, are the major take-home messages of Eric Hirschman's transcript. One of uh, the people we're supposed to, uh, you know, I think, sort of venerate as a hero, it's clear to me, he was no hero, of course. In fact, he's got his own agenda, and his agenda is to work with Jared and Ivanka to make sure that they come out of this okay. And also, for some reason, really, really to protect Rudy Giuliani. Fascinating. Uh, interesting, by the way, of course, that um, Pasatino tells Cassie Hutchinson that one of the things he wants to do is to protect Eric Hirschman. So, you know, why it is that they're protecting Eric Hirschman, who's protecting Rudy Giuliani, I don't know. But interesting questions regarding all that. Okay, so look forward to the next episode. Um, I don't know what it's going to be about. Uh, I had recorded, I had written actually many more pages of material. I wound up skipping some of it in the interest of time. Um, but in this instance, uh, hopefully it'll be forgive, I'll be forgiven because, uh, you know, we had some late breaking news. Um, and we don't know, right? We don't know what's going to happen, but it does make sense that the Bragg indictment would be the first one, even though we are all looking forward to, I think, uh, coup and or election interference related, uh, you know, tra things transpiring, uh, various indictments that could come down from either Fulton County or uh, the, the many grand juries that are operating in D.C. But could be now that we've got one, we're going to start, start to see some more and we're going to see further indictments of Donald Trump, and he's going to be, have to be defending himself in multiple jurisdictions. So until next time, thank you so much for listening, and have a very pleasant April.